This is Barbara Crampton, and you're listening to Without Your Head. tomorrow and I'm probably three hours behind other things that I have to do one of which being um, I have a PR person now her name is Patricia Shika and if anybody out there wants PR she is absolutely the most amazing miracle I've ever seen so she set me up with all this stuff up at Sundance so one of the things I have to do is I got to you know get all of it and put it in a calendar <laughs> that'll take an hour or two yeah, um, but she's awesome, absolutely though. amazing. I mean, if you guys want any PR, anybody else, I've never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just amazing. Yeah. So I, that's 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 where I'm at. That's all. And I, from what I understand from uh, from other guests, sometimes it's very hard to find is someone who's uh, who does a good job and is a re- and is reliable. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It's like anything, you know, like agents and stuff like that. But this woman, you know. We got together. She said, do you want me to work with you for Sundance? She also put me in a, uh, it was just, um, she shot a, um, um, a music video PSA mm-hmm. about donating blood. And I played a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. It's, it's a very funny spot about uh-huh. vampires and people who donate blood. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, she just, you know, took this whole thing and ran with it. And, you know, I, I think I need like you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, got it through Patricia, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yep. And uh, you've been very active. All kinds of stuff yes. coming up. And uh, Sundance, that's going to be exciting. Yes. Cold and exciting. <laughs> I prefer hot and exciting. Uh-huh. I'm a hot person. Um, but I was just talking to Chris, my manager, and he's been there for the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um. And he said, you know, cold, everybody talks about the cold. It's just what you deal with. And it's snowing. Where are you guys at? Uh, we're both in Massachusetts, so we're we're, clo- we're used to the cold. Maybe not Yeah, cold it's pretty cold here. Yeah. Which part of Massachusetts I'm are on, you in? I'm on the Cape, on Cape Cod. Yeah. Oh, I've been to Cape Cod. I did uh, one of my first summer stop jobs up there. Oh, really? Hmm. Oh, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. It was uh 
a Leonard Melfi play and three quarters of the actors studio came up there along with Al Pacino and Jill Clayburgh. May she rest in peace. And I think they were breaking up at the time. And for some reason, while I was very young and flirty and stuff, they all decided that I wanted their boyfriends and husbands. <laughs> so they kept making all these faces behind me when I was on stage doing a monologue or something. Uh-huh. God, what a memory. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Uh-huh. Do you know whereabouts on the cave? No, all right. So, I probably could figure it out, but not offhand now. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought the cape was the cape. Yeah, well, no, I'm in a place called Sandwich, which is an odd sound to the town, and there's Hyannis, Hyannis Ports, all different places. But, yeah, it's all different. Uh, I think a lot of pe- <laughs> some people might not know that you, uh, you know, you did theater. You did, did I what? That you did theater. Oh, yeah, no, I started out doing theater. You know, and, and the fact... Um, if anybody wants to read my book, mm-hmm. Exercising My Demons, you will find out that I was doing a play and these agents came to see the play and asked me if I wanted to audition for The Exorcist. What, what was it about, uh, you think, your performance in the play that they thought you'd be good uh, for The Exorcist? I was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, they see, they, they also needed someone, although I was not a double, Mm-hmm. So people like to call me a double, but they still did need somebody who was about the same size as Linda, who is 12. So I'm small, and they wanted someone who's strong and who could act. So that's what the, the audition notice was. Mm-hmm. And this play was uh, it was almost a one-woman play about this little girl that comes from Detroit to New York to find love. And she gets off the bus, and she meets a pimp. But she doesn't know it's a pimp. And... um She's so in love with him, and she's so mortified, and she can't go back home because she's a runaway. So she starts losing her mind, and he brings her boys and girls, and um, which does not tell you anything about what this play is about because it's actually very lyrical and poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and my character spoke to the audience a lot. It's a real nice play. Do you know what Joyce Carol Oates is? I, I do not. I'm sorry. Uh, do- she's written about boxes all her life. Um, and this was, um, a lead up to one of her short stories. Uh, it wasn't really a play, but we took it and made it a play. When so, you, yeah, uh, I did a lot of theater. I did steam baths, Tony Perkins, mm-hmm. which was an nice. absolute joy. And, um, I, I mean, I, we, we, beca- we became friends, not huge friends, but we did become friends and, um, I enjoyed him very much. Mm-hmm. Now, when you did, uh, I know it's in your book, but when you did the, uh, when you did the audition for The Exorcist, uh, like, uh, what kind of scenes did you, did they have the script and what kind of things did you, uh, did you No, read? they wanted improvs. Oh, okay. They wanted, uh, I went in there and I did improvisations. And, um, when I actually did the improvisation, I actually played the part of the little girl and the demon at the same time talking to each other. Oh, wow. Such as... You wow, you pig, you pig. Mommy, mommy, help me, help me. You sow. I'm inside of you. Stuff like that. And um, the the prop people brought out a crucifix that was about two and a half feet long. It was hysterical. It was a paper mache crucifix. So we used that too. <laughs> <laughs> so where did that voice come from? Like, uh, was it? did you ever do it before? 
No, actually what I did is um, I couldn't figure out what a demon was like. None of us can, really. But I figured the closest I could get to were animals in the the wild, jungle animals. Mm -hmm. So I went and bought a book about all these jungle animals, and I closed there. I I lived in New York City at the time, and they always had those shades on the windows. So I pulled the shades, I lit a whole bunch of candles, and I just went, ah, you know, like a lion sound. Mm-hmm. Ah, ah, I hate that. And that's where the voice came from. <laughs> but most of the voice is Mercedes McCambers. And then Linda and I, were we filled in parts of it. But most of it was Mercedes McCambers. Mm-hmm. Uh, by, by the way, where can you get your book, Exercising My Demons? Um, the absolute best way to do it. Um, don't do it on Amazon because uh-huh. um, it's a crummy deal for me and you don't get it autographed. Mm. So the best way to do it is most everybody's on Facebook, right? Oh, yeah. So um, uh, to go to Facebook, um, chat me up. I'm under Eileen Deeds. I can't quite make you a friend necessarily because I got 5,000 friends and yeah. 230 people waiting, mm-hmm. which I hate. Yeah. And I don't know why Facebook has to have a limit. What difference does it make? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's the best way um, is to to chat me up on Facebook. And I'm going to kill you if you if it's for any other reason except <laughs> buying a book because uh-huh. then you can give me just send me a notifi- notification. You know? <laughs> um, but that's really the best way. And the book is twenty five dollars plus postage. Yeah. And um, you'll get it autographed any way you want. And if you're really nice, I might even put a quote in there. And that's the best way. Cool. And I also sell statues of Pazuzu and Pazuzu's head and uh, the original script of The Exorcist. I have a pillow with Pazuzu's head on it mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. Uh, Captain Howdy's green pea soup. Um, and so it's kind of really fun. And my website is down, so the best you can really do, I think, is go to my fan page and yeah. see what's up there. Or just get in touch with me, and I'll send you pictures of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, where did the name Captain Howdy come from? Um, in the beginning of the movie, um, um, uh, Reagan is playing with her Ouija board, mm-hmm. and uh, her mom hears all these voices coming, uh, a voice coming. She said, honey, who are you talking to? And she said, Mommy, I'm talking to Captain Howdy. Mm-hmm. And that's where it came from. Yeah. I just used a Ouija board uh, for the first time not not that long ago. Uh, do you believe Do you believe in Ouija boards and uh, possessions and and whatnot? Um, I believe if you believe it, then it will happen. <laughs> um, I, I think we can bring a lot of things down ourselves. If, uh, our thoughts control our lives, uh-huh. um, and I just don't want to mess around with stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know for sure. I don't know, you know, for sure about a lot of things, but uh, spiritually, but um, everything else I know everything about. <laughs> um, but why, why mess around with it? Mm-hmm. And it's another quick story that I did a movie. Um, what is it called now? I think it's called The Cabin of Somebody Foster. Um, and we were shooting up at Big Bear and... California and everything was going great. And the, I got to tell you, walking on that in the cabin on the set, I thought I was at a studio because all the guys worked for a big camera house. And man, they had cranes and cameras and all this equipment. And 
everything was absolutely going great. And then the next scene they shot, she was supposed to throw a Ouija board into the fire mm-hmm. place. And number one, they really treated this stuff with some kind of really, you know, some kind of fire thing that would really go up and smoke. Mm-hmm. And um, she threw the Ouija board in there and her hair started to burn, not badly. And thank God they had um, they had fire extinguishers right by her. So it wasn't bad, but she did get burned. And then the next thing that happened, they had two and a half feet of snow. So we couldn't even get to the set from the hotel. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't shoot. And then they used all their money from the movie to bring all the equipment down the hill. Cause it's like a 20 minute climb up to a big bear yeah. and the snow. So they used all the money to get the equipment out and we couldn't, we, we didn't reshoot that thing. We started to, and then, I think they had fires. I mean, anything you can imagine. And so they gave me a custom-made Ouija board, and they came over to my house a couple weeks late, and they said, Eileen, I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous, but everything's going wrong. I have to take that Ouija board back from you. I have to get it blessed, and I have to throw it into the ocean. (laughs) So they did. Um, And the producer said, you know, I don't know whether this is all true or not, Uh but just in case. And then we finished shooting it. About six months later, and all of a sudden, John Savage was in it. Uh, all of a sudden, I was supposed to be this apparition from the 70s, this like grandma type. And all of a sudden, I turned into this <laughs> princess of the pochette, you know, which is the little thing you use on the Ouija board. Uh-huh. And one of the few times in my life I was in a film that they made me beautiful. Um, and actually, I haven't seen it yet, but I mean, they went through hell. And all because they threw that Ouija board in the fire. <laughs> that's crazy. But now, Funny, huh? Yeah, that's pretty awesome. No, uh, I'm sure. I com- gave somebody a gift of a Ouija board because they made a movie called Unleashed, uh-huh. which was about Ouija boards and where they came from and everything. Mm-hmm. And they hung it in their office. And in the next eight months, they tried to make a movie in Europe. They, it fell apart. Everybody went broke. Everybody went bankrupt. Everybody in the family aren't even talking to each other anymore. Uh-huh. And I don't know if it was because of the Ouija board or not, but I'd feel really bad if it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you ever actually used one yourself? A Ouija board? Yeah. No. I, I mean, I, I play with it, but I, I never did in any seriousness. But I do have a Ouija board here in my house because I used to sell them. Um, there was this great company in Tennessee um, that made these custom, custom made Ouija boards, you know, cause the ones you can buy in the store are mostly out of cardboard now yeah, and they're yeah. really creepy. Oh, yeah, the so I saved right. one yeah. cause I always wanted to make more and uh-huh. I do have one in my house and so maybe I should get rid of that, <laughs> but my life's pretty good. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Annabelle, uh, cause I used what, to, what, wait, excuse the expression, but what possessed you to play with the Ouija board? Well, yeah, uh, so Annabelle and I used it. Um, she believes, she, not really believes, but kind of, I think more like you, like, uh, you know, maybe there's something to it. I don't believe that kind of stuff at all. And, uh, but we used it, actually, I guess it was a couple of years ago, but then we used it again on Halloween this year in Salem at, uh, like, midnight or whatever. And uh, it, it, it it's weird because uh, I don't believe that stuff, but, uh, like, the first time we used it, we got a lot of answers, and they were all, like, really mundane stuff. And I would think, like, if you were making it up, even not intentionally, like, you, it would be something a lot more interesting than, like, like suppose, like, the guy said he was, like, a teacher and, like, 
it was just really. Yeah, but the question, the questions were yours. You mean the answers were mundane? Yeah, yeah, the answers were, you know, like basic stuff, which to me kind of seemed like there was more, maybe actually something to it, uh, since it was kind of just, you know, basic stuff. But this last time we used like Halloween, said, uh, I just real quick, we started using it, and uh, and Amber was like, look behind you, and as soon as we started using it, there was this big raccoon came up behind me and climbed up the tree. We were in uh, Salem, Massachusetts, and it sat in like uh, the branch, like right over my head behind me. It was very bizarre. <laughs> it is bizarre. That might have been a reincarnation of somebody you once knew. <laughs> maybe so. My feeling is I don't walk under ladders, mm-hmm. and I have a black cat, so that doesn't really count. Um, but just, you know, I throw salt over my shoulder, just in case. Yeah. You know, no, it's not gonna I mess hurt around with, with the spirits. Right. And if there's nothing to it, it's not going to hurt anything, so why not? You know, the very beginning of my book starts that way. I went to see a, um, um, a psychic, a gypsy-type psychic person. And, um, I mean, true story. And I went to see her and, um, she, she had this like accent and she said, you are going to be surrounded by cameras and people, but beware because something very bad could happen to you. Beware. And I went, yeah, right. And I walked out into the sunshine and the next thing I knew I was casting the exorcist. So I don't know. Yeah. Coincidence, maybe. <laughs> Now, I've always heard that they had a priest uh, bless the set every day on, on The Exorcist. Yeah, but, you know, that was, um, Billy Freakin is the least spiritual person in the whole world. Mm-hmm. So he only did it as a publicity thing. <laughs> right. But yes, they did. They had yeah. a priest come out and um, and bless the set. And, you know, people always tell me, do you believe all that? Um, do you believe everything that was going on? Do you believe in, and I said, it's the same thing. I don't know that it's not true, so why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? I mean, if you want to bless me, bless me. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not going <laughs> anyway, right? Now, uh, William Peter Bat- uh, Blatty passed away recently. Uh, did you ever... I know, and he died a day early. Isn't that sad? Uh, he day... died on the 12th. He should have died oh, on Friday the 13th. the 13th. Yeah, that would have been perfect timing. <laughs> I know. A, Come on, Billy. Yeah, you could have. Yeah. We actually got to be very close um, in the later years of his life. Oh, really? So, not uh, I mean, about that was, bit. that's that's actors speak for very close. I mean, what happened is he found me on Facebook, mm-hmm. and he said, um, "Eileen, I, I'm sorry it took me 35 years for me to tell you that your scenes were my favorite scenes in the whole movie." So then we started corresponding, and he sent me a copy of his book. Um, obviously autographed first edition. I sent him a copy of my book and I sent him a little joke I have about writers and stuff. It's kind of a writer is sitting there obviously with his manager in the middle of the desert with a table with books on and he looks at him and says, boy, you must be the worst manager in the whole world. <laughs> um, so I sent him a copy and we just corresponded and see what was going on and stuff like that. And that, that was, that was really nice. Yeah. Because, you know, he and Billy Freakin didn't get along at all. I didn't they, know that. They really did, didn't like each other. Mm-hmm. And um, Freakin really wouldn't listen to things. And Blatty says that, um, obviously, The Exorcist is an amazing, excellent, terrific film. Mm-hmm. But it could have been a masterpiece if uh, if they had just listened to him. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of writers probably feel that way. But um, there were certain things he wanted, like... You know, Kitty Wynn, you always, you always had this 
the spiritual and the demonic um, going on. And Kitty Wynn, who played the secretary, she was a spiritual person that was around. And they caught practically everything she did. And she, you know, she almost has a very small part in the movie now. Mm-hmm. Did you know so why? They, you know, they just went to the... Um, it's, it's funny because I happened to be sitting on the bed for some crazy reason when Billy Freakin was talking to somebody and they said, yeah, we're just going to go for the grossness, just go for the vomiting scenes and that scene and that scene and, you know, forget the uh, anything that's subtle or uh, thing. And, um, I mean, Bill Blatty didn't want the movie to end the way it did, where it was so obvious, mm-hmm. uh, a demon, because the eyes go into Jason Miller before he goes out the window. Mm-hmm. And so Billy Freakin wanted that, but Blatty really didn't want that because if you do read the book, the book is much more a question of whether Reagan was really crazy or she was totally possessed. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes it interesting. But the way they did the movie, obviously, is she was obviously totally, totally possessed. Yeah. Uh, what was uh, what was his autobiography like? Freakin? Yeah. I only Bl- read, Bl- I only read Bl- the Bl- part Bl- about me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I only read the part about me. <laughs> I'd probably do the same, you know, but <laughs> which wasn't, you know, it wasn't kind. He didn't like Mercedes McKay with Jorman mm. because um, he honestly felt that because of us were the reasons the film didn't win the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Well, and Linda Blair hasn't spoken to me in forty years because she thinks I'm the reason she didn't win the Oscar, which is kind of true in a way. But it had nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything except the work I did, and when I got to L.A. Um, I, somebody, I know that somebody, it was a girl I knew in New York, uh, I had an acting class with, and she had a friend who wrote for the LA Times, and she gave the story to the biggest um, uh, gossip columnist at the time, and um, she ran the story that there was this girl that was from New York claiming to have been in The Exorcist, and then the shit hit the fan. Mm-hmm. Did that change how you felt about the movie at the time when, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. well, I didn't even, um, for, uh, they hurt me so badly because, um, I came out to LA and I had like three agents from New York city and they had three agents that want to sign me and things were a lot different then. And the studios had a lot more power. Right. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as, uh, the Hollywood reporter ran the story, like who was really did, who really did this and who really did that and variety. And I mean, it was the biggest story in, in, in California. Um, and I had nothing to do with that, but they felt that, um, if you, I mean, if you read the book, it's just an incredible story. When I walked into this bungalow at Warner Brothers, because they invited me to come out to California, mm-hmm. and I was sitting there, and the sun was shining, and I was like, oh, my God, I was on a movie lot. Oh, you know, like, yeah. wow. And he walks out the door. He looks at me, and he says, you'll never work in this town again, wow. and turns around and leaves. Wow. And the sun went, the sun went away. You know, and the guy who I told my story to, this guy, Dan Boubier, the writer, mm-hmm. is an absolute genius. I mean, he the way he wrote that scene um, and other scenes, it just makes you want to laugh and cry and uh, everything. It was horrible. It was horrible. I, I walked out of there and the, I was scared to death because I believed him. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and here's this little seven-year-old child who, I mean, had been ever since I was seven that wanted nothing more to be an actress. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, he just shattered all of that. And oh, all these rumors went around that I was suing Warner Brothers, which, of course, I wasn't. Uh, Mercedes McCambridge did. And, um, you know, people just thought I was, uh, I'd step on the toes of a child in order to get ahead and... I mean, you you could do drugs in this town or, you know, sleep around or do anything else, yeah. but you can't mess around with a child. Uh-huh. And, of course, I you know, I never would do that. I'd be the first person to tell you that, you know, Linda, um, Linda, you know, she played Reagan. The medical scenes and all that kind of stuff were absolutely mm-hmm. really intense. I never wanted to take anything away from her. Yeah. So, so was, I don't know if that answers your no, question, but anyway, no, I, think it definitely, um, yeah, I finally does. got an agent and, um, well, I actually, I walked into a bungalow where they were, I didn't know you couldn't walk on a set. I mean, in, a, uh, into a studio lot. And I just walked over to where they were shooting, uh, Planet of the Apes. And I walked in there and I said, I want to be an ape. <laughs> and Marvin Page, who, uh, rests his soul. Um, he said, okay, read for me. And I read for the part of an ape. He called me and I got the job. So then I started working again and I did Helter Skelter and I did a couple of television shows. And then the same casting person cast me in General Hospital. Mm-hmm. Nope. So then everything turned around. But for a while there, it was horrible. I was, you know, and it was like, I suppose someone who's on trial for murder and can't get anybody to believe that they never killed anybody. Yeah. And when would you say, like, uh, you were able to... Uh, like enjoy that you were in part of the exorcist again? Um, um, somewhere around the eighties when I was doing general hospital and stuff. And then, you know, things started changing and it wasn't until 2000 that I started doing horror conventions. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing them for about 16 years. Yeah. And I met Chris Rowe, my manager, and still is my manager. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know what horror conventions were. And they told me, you know, a friend of mine, um, I walked into this spiritual place that I go to, a spiritual group, and Dee Wallace was there. And she was running around. I said, where are you going? And she said, oh, I do these horror conventions and da-da-da-da-da. And I went, oh, wow. And then I had dinner with a friend of mine, and he said, do you know your pictures on the cover of Fangoria magazine? And I said, no, I didn't know that. And your pictures on the cover of a book. I said, I didn't know that either. And then I ran to Dee again. She said, do you want to meet my manager? And that was the first thing I knew about horror conventions. And I started doing them. And Chris worked really hard because he had to, you know, let people know who I was. Mm -hmm. And everybody would go, I didn't know that she didn't do all that work. And um, that's when when I really started feeling comfortable with it again. I was so hurt. I mean, it's so amazingly hurt that anybody would do this to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sorry that I even came out to California because mm-hmm. I figured if I'd stayed in New York, then none of that would happen. And they just would have brought me out to California to shoot the heretic. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a big roller coaster there to, you know, get the role in this big movie, do it. And then like kind of all that kind of falls out. You can't, you can't like really enjoy that you're part of it. And then, uh, and then it's then oh, it was the worst. People, it was now, absolutely the worst. You know, now fans and, can uh, can appreciate it and that that you were part. Yeah, of. well, they ended up buying my film from the Exorcist and putting it in the Heretic, 
because I hired two other people to play the demon and fired both of them, mm-hmm. which I went, wow, I didn't know I, I was that good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then when they wanted, uh, an actor can negotiate uh, the price for when someone buys your film from one project to another. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like um, the vomiting scene in The Burbs. Um, and you can you can say no. Uh-huh. No, you can't use that. But by at that time, I just said, just take it, take it, yeah. pay me what you want. You know what I mean? Uh huh. Definitely. So, uh, but what what movie do you have uh, coming up here for the uh, for Sundance? Lake Alice. So anyway, well, you know, yeah, that's just a little taste for all you people out there. If you really want to delve into what went on and what was happening and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, then you have to buy my book. But I am planning to make an audio book. Oh, awesome! It's uh, yeah. I, I really like audiobooks. It's kind of a weird story. Why? Is because I had very bad eyesight until I had LASIK. I wore glasses since I was six, and like I was legally blind when I. And so I like. Can the you audiobooks. wait? 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 Can you uh-huh. say that whole paragraph again? Sure. I didn't get it. Okay, so I had very bad eyesight since I was six. Um, okay. And I was uh, like legally blind in one eye, and I twenty sixty vision in the other eye with with my glasses, and that made it actually hard to like read like a book. Or really do much of anything, and so I, I like the audiobooks. Um, a few, uh, uh-huh. I guess it was about, I guess it's longer than I think now. Probably about eight years ago, I had LASIK surgery and I can see, but I still was in the the, the habit of listening to the audiobooks. So, uh, especially if you have a good reader, so I'm looking forward to uh, listening to the audio version. Yeah, it'll probably be about you know like six or eight months um, um, before I actually finish it because mm-hmm. I guess so. Maybe not. Maybe I'll do it in about three months or four months. Yeah. But um, I think it'd be fun, and the whole book's written in the first person. Mm-hmm. So, um, what, what was the experience uh, like itself of you know uh, getting all these memories back together for the book? You know, to revisit out everything. It was it was it was very. You asked me very interesting questions, by the way. Thank you. It was very difficult, and um, what I um, Dan, the author, lives in Connecticut, so I had to call him. Um, I couldn't call him any later than five o'clock because he is, you know, he has a baby and blah, blah, blah stuff. I I was very scared and, um, that I was really, really scared. And I, I didn't know if, uh, you know, Warner Brothers or, um, I can't think of the name of the people. They just produced the exorcist on television. Um, that if they were going to come after me again or they were going to try and sue me. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book is very tame, actually. Um, I don't, it's not a book where I'm seeking revenge or saying bad things about anybody. I don't say bad things about anybody in the book, mm-hmm. but it was very, it was very scary. But I think if any, if it occurred to anybody, they probably said, well, we're not going to do anything because that'll just give her publicity. And I've worked for Warner Brothers after that. Probably everybody that was around when that all happened in 74, half of them are probably dead. <laughs> They're not working at Warner Brothers anymore. Right, right. Uh, by the way, actually, have you seen the uh, the TV show? I have seen it. Uh, do you have any thoughts on it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to share those thoughts, or maybe not? I don't know. Well, you know, no, I don't mind really sharing them. I, I never want. I didn't want it to sound like sour grapes or anything. Because I, I actually wanted it to be very good. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it would only help me in the long run, right? That's I mean, they didn't true. call me to be in it, yeah. but um, plus, you know, new. new have you seen it? it? Uh, I saw the first a few episodes. 
And why did you stop? Because it didn't really uh, interest me. Well, did you see the part, um, the reveal, the big reveal? And I'm not going to say what it is because, um, you know, maybe a lot of your people are going to watch it. I probably um, didn't. You know. I should go back because I, th- I think I did miss something big because I remember when I, right after I stopped watching it, I remember seeing people say there was something big. Well, after we get off the phone, I'll tell you what it was. All right. But, um, it was. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was really stupid. Uh-huh. And um, I'm sorry, I didn't particularly like Gina Davis. And um, then her mother comes on, and um, you know, her mother's the mother of Ray. I don't know. They just got very convoluted. Mm-hmm. I like the. I like the, not the daughter that got possessed. I like the other daughter. The people are afraid of it, and they keep saying it's the curse of the exorcist that they can't get a really big hit anymore uh-huh. but for some reason they just don't get good scripts mm-hmm. the uh the you know like the begin extras the beginning or extras the prologue yeah yeah i, <laughs> I mean I, really this, <laughs> yeah i've always I, I mean i said this on the show not just because you're here but uh i don't i don't think any like exorcist any movie about exorcism since the exorcist has has really been that great and I think it's, I don't know, I think it's just you can never really top The Exorcist. Or none of them have, so then they kind of all kind of seem, you know, n- not as good. Well, yeah, well, once again, it starts with the script. I really like The Exorcism of uh, Audrey Rose, but that's not really about exorcism. Mm-hmm. That's really about the, the court trial. Yeah. Um, you know, I just said this in an interview that I just did, um, that... You know, even the Bible says first there was the Word, and uh, I think first there was light, and then there was the Word, or something like that. <laughs> and Shakespeare said the play's the thing. You have to have a script. You can't make a movie without a script. Mm-hmm. And I don't care, in my opinion, I don't care what actor's in it. I don't care, you know what I mean, if it's Brad Pitt or whomever it was. You can't make a movie without a script. Mm-hmm. And they just have never come up with a good script. Hi, this is Adrienne Barbeau. Just call me Billy. Everyone does. And you're listening to withoutyourhead.com. So, what do you do besides the radio? Uh, myself? Uh, well, mostly the radio. But uh, I sell stuff on uh, eBay a lot. And uh, Really? Yeah. Yeah. Should we, talk, should we talk later and you can sell a whole bunch of stuff for me? Sure. Oh, Neil, that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, that would work out. <laughs> I'm serious. I also, I have the 16-minute um, film version of a movie called David Holstein's Diary mm-hmm. that I shot that's actually, um, they teach it in universities and film classes all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very famous movie within that, that genre because mm-hmm. um, it's the first movie anybody ever made where... Um, uh, Kit Carson, I think he just died too, um, broke the fourth wall mm-hmm. and I uh, actually talked to the audience because he wanted to put his life on film and then he wanted to be able to stop it and make it go uh, or go backwards or go forwards and he could control his life that way. And I played his girlfriend. So um, and I'm actually selling that. So if there's anybody out there that's interested in buying, um, I don't know how I ended up with it, <laughs> but if somebody's interested in buying a 60 millimeter film print um, from the early 70s, that's in still very, very good shape. 
um, Facebook me. Definitely. I think if you find the right person, uh, I think there's definitely an audience out there. Yeah, a friend of mine says that there are actually collectors. Yeah. And um, I thought somebody was going to, they never did it, the Beverly Cinema down here. Um, uh, Quentin Tarantino um, took over that theater. And uh, he will only show film. He won't show anything that's digital. Oh, okay. And I thought I thought they were going to look at that, but whatever happened, they didn't. So one of these days, if before I sell it, yeah. I'm going to see if he wants to run it down there. That'd be sweet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yes, it's a very famous movie. Mm-hmm. So well, let's talk about that at another time, because I do have some very interesting stuff that I'd like to get rid of. Yeah, definitely. That, uh, we go to a theater. Uh, it's in uh, Boston. Um, and they show, uh, I used to talk about film, is they show uh, almost all 35mm film. And, uh, you know, they have, like, midnight movies every weekend. And it's a lot of fun to go and see the uh, to see the old movies and the original 35mm on the big screen. Cause it's, it's, it really does look different. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You Did know? you see The Exorcist there, Neil? Yeah, actually, yeah. Actually, That's yeah, too cool. That was, uh, was several years ago, but yeah. I think it was one of the first times Annabelle and I met in person when we went to see The Exorcist. Yeah. It was interesting, though, because I went to a place called um, Bormont. I think I pronounced right. Bormont in the U.K. Mm-hmm. Uh, last summer. And they did a screening of The Exorcist in this little seaside town. It's like um, um, 100 miles outside of London. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, for some reason, the only way, I think they're, they're a little theater out there. Um, only does film. So I saw it on film, and I hadn't seen it on film in a long time, and it really does make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does, it seems, for most movies, or any movie, really, and plus being on the big screen. And, and uh, it is too bad so many people watch stuff. On, I, I couldn't imagine what... I can watch on your TV and your computer, but uh, people who watch, like, movies on their cell phone, I don't see how you can oh, really God. enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> we have a, a projector... And um, my husband, Thomas, uh, created this screen that goes over one of our walls, and it's life-size. Oh, nice. It's as big as some of the small theaters that we have here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's absolutely like We watch a lot of sports on there. Yeah. Um, it's nothing like watching a football game on a life-size screen. Yeah. Um, or baseball. Actually, baseball looks really interesting up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we run movies. So, um that works, but I can't imagine seeing a movie on the phone. No. What kind of movies are you interested in? You know, as to watch yourself. <laughs> Good <to> ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, that narrows it down. You know what I really want to see? Uh-huh. I want to see the autopsy of Jane Doe. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that either, and I've heard nothing. I heard things great about things about it. Yeah. About it. Mm-hmm. it does I like good horror films, yeah. but I can't really mention, I, I mean, like, I don't know how many. I'd have to think about horror films that I've really enjoyed, like mm-hmm. in the last year or last couple of years. Yeah, I, like, I like Mama. Okay, yeah, and uh, I like Don't Breathe last year. I thought that was that was very good. I haven't seen that. Okay, I did like the one Annabelle, which mm-hmm. I was surprised. But I again, I oh, saw yeah. that at home. I didn't pay eleven dollars or fourteen dollars to go see it, mm-hmm. and I think that. Um, not that it's all about money, but I think I see a lot of movies at Screen Actors Guild. They have um, a film society, and you get to see a movie every other weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you feel one way about that. You feel another way if you watch it at home or you buy a DVD for, you know, yeah. um, 
or if you go to the movies and pay $14. If you pay $14 in the movies, you better be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, then you, you feel you feel ripped off. It, the, the the one thing uh, I always feel, at least, at least I can come on the show if it's really bad and talk bad about the movie. But uh, so it's it's not a total loss. That's how I look at it. But uh, yeah. You uh, wait, wait, bad. wait! You talk badly about what? No, if if I if I went to see a bat if I went to see a movie and I paid for it, it's very bad. I always think of, well, at least I can now talk bad about the movie on on this show. So it's not a total loss. That's that's how I look at it. But uh, yeah, you do feel bad if you spend you know fourteen or fifteen dollars, and it's yeah, it's not fourteen or fifteen. It's thirty. Yeah. If you're well, a couple, people, you're married exactly. or something, yeah. and if you have kids, then you know you take two kids, four people to the movies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like insane. Yeah. So you know, and then the you know they have kids prices up to like three, three mm-hmm. years old, and then you pay an adult price. It's insane. Mm-hmm. The world is insane. Uh, I I think what I have to do in my later life is I I'm going to keep a notebook and I'm going to write down the movies I really liked and the movies I don't like. I love La La Land, by the way. I haven't seen that one either, but I've uh, that's another one I've uh, seen all good reviews for. Oh, it's uh, it just makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes me happy. I just think it, it's so well done. But most of the other movies that are up for um, for, up for awards, I just didn't think much of it. And you know, this movie um, um, Manchester by the Sea that mm-hmm. everybody's going nuts over. Mm-hmm. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. hey! And Moonlight is the same thing, except Moonlight I think is better than than that. So I don't know, and it's not that I'm you know particularly particular. Mm-hmm. You know what I saw on the airplane? I saw Bad Moms. I just came back from New York. That was uh-huh. funny. I really liked that. And then I saw Woody Allen's Cafe Society, and uh-huh. I like both of those. Troy's a, Troy here is a big fan of Woody Allen. Yeah, that what, that what? I'm sorry. That what? Cafe Society I really liked, too. Yeah, wasn't that fun? Yeah. Lots of jazz, but I, I yep. just thought it was fun. It's a Woody Allen movie, and it, it was fun. And so what are your favorite movies of the year? Hmm. I'm trying to think of what I saw last. Well, I, I know. I, 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 I know this, but I can't remember either. And I go to the movies just about every other week uh-huh. at the Screen Actors Guild, and I just can't remember. Mm-hmm. And I, I did have a. Uh, it was my lot last my lost summer because I was in the a hospital, then I was in rehab, and then I was in back in the hospital. So, uh, so there was like three or four months I, I didn't see anything besides Netflix on my uh, laptop. Wow. That's really terrible. <laughs> yeah. Was... How about TV shows? Do you watch The Walking Dead? Yeah, I watch Walking Dead. I think there's a lot of great TV shows in the last 10 years, like uh, ever since... There the are so many TV shows out there now that I can't even begin to watch them all. Yeah, and actually, I I've never watched Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's track of them. Yeah, people say, Eileen, you haven't watched The Walking Dead? No. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was very talky. When I first started watching it, it was just a lot of talk, da 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 da. But I did like Strange Things. I love, yeah, I love Strange oh, Things. Yeah. I thought that um, that's great. Um, there's also Westworld's uh, great on uh, yeah, Westworld on really HBO. Uh huh. But Stranger Things yeah, is really um, good. Uh, Black Mirror is really good. That's on Netflix. Um, it's kind. Yeah, of, I heard something about that. Yeah, it's sort of like Twilight Zone, and it's really heavy on like social and political uh, commentary, you know, but set within science fiction. Um, hmm. 
Yeah, that one's very good. I really like this movie, and I've been trying to think of the name of it. A woman goes to this really secluded uh, kind of manor place mm-hmm. out uh, somewhere in the U.K., and the family take, has this doll that they consider their son. Oh, you know the what boy. I'm talking about? The boy? I believe that's called The Boy. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I really like that. Yeah, I, I I wanted to go see that at the time, but you know, I actually have not seen that one yet. But uh, it looked really yeah. good from the from the trailer. I thought even Thomas liked it. And he said, "Oh my God, I mean, you're dragging me to see another horror film." <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Boy, that was really good." Uh-huh. And where do we? Actually, I don't think we went out to see it. I think that we. I don't know how we saw it. Hmm. No, no. Well, we usually go to see two or three movies at a time. So we probably went to see something else and then saw that as second song. Yeah. So uh, you said about... Anyway. Mm-hmm. But, I was going to say you said about being in New York for... Uh, it was a macabre uh, fair film fest. Uh, how did you get involved in that? Because you're, you're the ambassador. Um, don't know. In fact, I was going <laughs> to ask Elsie. I couldn't remember. Uh, I thought you were going to ask us. Uh, I guess she... <laughs> No, I think that she, uh, um, I've been going there for four years, four or five years. We were trying to figure it out um, over the weekend. Um, and the first time, I think she just called Chris and said, we'd like to have you down there. Mm-hmm. And I've watched the, I just watched her grow, you know. I mean, but so did Sundance. So did Comic-Con. They, all, they both started really small. Mm-hmm. And so I've watched them grow. And, and, and grow from this motel to um, where they are now. And now it's just like a family affair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they just decided I was the ambassador. I don't know what that means exactly. Yeah. But, um, it's a good title. You know, like when, when, hmm? I just said it's a, it's a good title, so run with it. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I have a plaque, too. Oh, nice. Um, but many of the people there and the volunteers, you know, we've gotten to know each other. And it's, it's really kind of like a family reunion. How is uh, how's Elsie doing? Because uh, I know her. Uh, um, at this moment in time, she's doing really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, that all the tumors seem to have, if they haven't disappeared, they seem to not even be in remission. Mm-hmm. They they seem to have shrunk. Mm-hmm. And she had them, you know, she had like three or four tumors on her body, different parts of her body, mm-hmm. and they seemed to have shrunk. She was great, and then unfortunately. You know, I guess being wintertime or everything, you know, 50% of the people there all got sick. And she yeah. got sick, which isn't good for you if you're, t- you're doing chemo and yeah, stuff. Yeah. But I think she's okay now. But she was amazing for the banquet and stuff like that. She She's an amazing woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't even say. She had breast cancer and she had uh, a double mastectomy about four years ago. No, it must have been longer than that. That's six years ago. And it came back. Mm-hmm. But then when it came back, it spread. Yeah. So, um, but she's, you know, she, she's going to do this. Even last year, we said, okay, we're planning the, you know, another festival in 2017, but who knows? Mm -hmm. And there she was. She's a great lady. Yeah. A great lady. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was there any standout uh, films? How many do you get to see in a lot of the movies there? Well, that's the problem, because I usually bring stuff to sell. Right. So it's always a conflict if I'm going to sit at my table mm-hmm. um, or go see films. And then I generally go see films that the filmmakers tell me about. Mm-hmm. I say, you know, I mean, they literally say, I mean, would you come down and see my film? And then I do. 
but I don't actually, you know, like go through the schedule and figure out what I want to see. And I saw two very, very good films. And, um, and so that's always fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you stay in touch sometimes with the filmmakers. One of them lives out here in Encino. Um, and um, it was great. I had a ball. And then they throw those great banquets. So anybody who's listening out there that lives in the tri-state area, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, um, come on down next year. It's really fun. And it's like um, it's like a family affair, you know, like everybody gets to know everybody and everybody has uh, a silly time with each other. And they have a big banquet and they have a horror fashion show and they have these belly dancers that come back every year that probably top 200 pounds on the scale. But they're hysterical. <laughs> and so it's just fun. Uh, yeah, I would definitely like to go sometime. And they make me the most insane birthday cake. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send you a picture of it. All right, um, every awesome. year, because my birthday is the 11th. Okay. Um, oh, that's perfect. And so they made this insane birthday cake with the face of death on it, with huge <laughs> fingers and hands. It's insane. Um, but really, anybody in the tri-state area, it's called the Macabre Fair. M-A-C-A-B-R-E Fair. F-A-I-R-E. And um, you know, come and down see it. Yeah. And also, look for this movie I've got at Sundance. This is commercial time, I guess. Um, it's called Lake Alice. And uh-huh. It's a thriller. Um, and um, it takes place in the cold of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. But it's a really good thriller, out of Alfred Hitchcock type story oh, nice. or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. The trailer looks really cool. And I did another movie called Assholes that people should look for, <laughs> except that it's A, Star, Star, Holes, you know, I think that's almost finished, and um, you know things are crazy. I'm going to do another movie called Sarah, which I think is a really funny name for a movie. But I shoot that at the beginning of February, mm-hmm. and I'm playing. I don't. Know, I haven't read the script yet. I'm going to read it on the plane, <laughs> but I know I play a schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like uh, you have a lot of uh, a lot of roles lately. Uh yeah. I think what's happening is people write a script and they say, we need a middle-aged woman. Let's get Irene. She'll work cheap. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dee Wallace and Adrian Barbeau and all those people were all about the same age. Mm-hmm. But they probably charge more money than I do. Because <laughs> I just love to work. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I mean, I get paid good money. Like when I did Constantine, I got paid really well when I did Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. I got paid really well. Um, so then that allows you to do these indie films that you just get to play great parts. Mm-hmm. What Was like Alice actually filmed in like outside? Well, not outside, but was it really filmed in real snow and was it cold? It was 10 degrees below zero. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, we had lake warmers and hand warmers. The crew was much in much worse shape because uh-huh. the crew was outside all the time, practically. And we would go inside and warm up between takes. And I was lying in the snow at one point, and they, they put down, a, um, a, 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 you know, those blankets, the storage blankets, Um so that was there, and they put snow on top of it. They took very good care of me, and it wasn't windy, mm-hmm. which was really nice. Because mm-hmm. I think it's the wind that's worse than the cold. Uh, yes, I agree 100% with that. Which brings me to the set of The Exorcist that they kept at about three, de- uh, three five degrees. Uh-huh. So that 
the you know the vape that would come out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. That's in the book too. Yeah, that seems like a running theme with you. Is uh, you always end up cold, in cold weather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. But, yeah. um, horror, horror in the cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, recurring thing. I much rather be when we go camping. It's like 105 degrees, <laughs> but we're camping off a lake uh-huh. um, outside of Laughlin, Nevada, and that's fine with me. I like the heat. Yeah, I like the heat. <laughs> and on that word, if I don't pack. Yes. Start packing and um, put that calendar together for Sundance. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to be in big trouble because I'm catching an 8 a.m. plane tomorrow oh. morning. All right. So it's been uh, it's been wonderful to have you back on, and I hope we have you b- back again. Oh yeah. I get. I'm a pretty good guest because you don't have to worry about you know what what you're going to say or if I'm going to say <laughs> anything because right? I just talk a lot. I, talk, uh, I like to tell stories. Those are our favorite guests. Yeah. We just kind of get the ball rolling exactly. and they run with yeah. it. Yeah. Trust me, we've had yes. we've had the opposite and it, it's much better to have someone who talks a lot. Oh yeah. As opposed to you asking what I think is a good question and they say, yep. <laughs> what, 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 who's with you? Is his name Todd? Troy. Name? Troy. 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 Mm-hmm. I haven't heard you say a word. I just kind of like listening to your stories. I kind of sit back and, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to do my quick commercial. If you're interested <laughs> in my book, if you're interested in buying any of this stuff. Um, and if you're interested in buying anything, and uh, you, can, you can also email me at Eileen at EileenGeeks.com because mm-hmm. I can just delete it if it gets crazy. <laughs> 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 but Facebook is probably the best way um, to get a hold of me if you want to get a hold and if we've inspired you to read this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll definitely be on the show again after I do the audio book if you'll have me. Definitely, yeah. Look oh, yeah, that, that sounds great. Yeah. Okay, and then, you know, I should do this. Uh, the movie up at Sundance is Blake Alice and produced by a great guy named Scott Miller. And um, his sister, actually, was 23, mm-hmm. and she wrote the screenplay. And the screenplay is so good is that I didn't know who the serial killer was until I finished it. Mm-hmm. I swear to you. So he did that, and a, a really great director named uh, Ben Milliken. Um, so that's my little um, commercial for them. Cool. Okay. Lake Alice. Look for it in your local. Well, we don't have any local stores anymore. Look for it, and it's not out yet, but look for it on <laughs> Netflix. <laughs> You'll find <laughs> or it on DirecTV. I mean, it's much better than than some of the stuff they have on late night DirecTV. I don't know where that stuff comes from. <laughs> All right, well, we'll let you get to uh, packing, and uh, thanks again. It's been awesome. Okay, and thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Enjoy uh, Sundance.
All right, and we're back here at Without Your Head. A huge thank you to Eileen Dietz. Oh, mad cool lady. I like that. Jesus had really interesting stories and cool takes on things. Yeah, and I really want to read her book. Yeah, I me might too. Have, I might have to get it before the uh, audiobook. Yep. <laughs> I do like audiobooks, but I, I really would like to read. Uh, oh, yeah, we well, can get a good job both, you know? hitting, at the, uh, hitting at the stories without going you know, totally over all of them. I know, she's just, you know, kind of left you wanting more on that. Exactly, exactly. And also big thanks to Amatica. Uh, that's our artist of the month here, Without Your Head, uh, oh, yeah. music of the month. If uh, if any of you guys out there have, uh, if you're a musician yourself, if you have a band, whatever, and you'd like to be featured on the show, uh, you might not be uh, music of the month, but we're doing a lot of music on the show. And I'll tell you, actually, we're going to be doing more here. I'll tell you that in a second. Uh, email without your head at gmail.com. And uh, we actually have a new member of the Without Your Head family. Johnny Rose is now the official headless DJ, and uh, he's he's going to debut this Saturday on Saturday music uh, horror music night, and uh, so he's going to be bringing uh, tunes every Saturday night. He's also going to be doing interviews with uh, the music of the month and uh, other people in the in the music world. Uh, actually, this Saturday he's interviewing some bands um, from a German punk festival. Nice. Oh, that's mad cool. Yeah. So uh, we welcome Johnny Rose aboard here, the Headless Universe. Absolutely. So, all right. By the way, get these in. We've got a couple already. Uh, I want to wait till Annabelle's here so all three of us can uh, listen to them. Send in your tall man impressions. All you got to do is call the number 508-413-3144 or Skype without your head anytime. 24-7, leave a voicemail of your best tall man impression, Angus Scrim. Absolutely. Play or your sh- worst one. We wouldn't mind hearing yeah. a few of those, too. Yeah. So, and and, and I know people out there, they're, they're uh, self-conscious. I know Ebony's going to do one, but she's worried. I say do it. Just send it in. Have fun. We've got eight copies, eight sets of Phantasm Remastered and Phantasm Ravager to give away all you fine folks so yeah do it call in exactly you've heard my tall man you can do it too exactly exactly uh coming up uh, uh in a little bit here we'll also have another guest on the show we're gonna have rudy womack the second and he's gonna be talking about his uh, new thriller which oddly enough was filmed in uh, the mountains of wyoming in the snow there's like this nice. everything's cold here tonight no, it's chilly night tonight. Yeah, Call of the Wolf. It's a very cool movie. Uh, it's a pretty uh, neat story. We're going to talk about it with him. But uh, he, uh, this was his college uh, thesis uh, thesis film uh, when he was in uh, film school. And uh, he made a feature instead of a short. And then uh, everyone thought it was so good, they decided to get it uh, released. So you added a score and, and touched it up. And uh, now the feature is actually out there. So it's pretty sweet. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Yeah. Well, February 7th will be up. Oh, okay. Yeah. So let's see here. Eileen was on, and uh, we brought up during the interview, but uh, William uh, Peter Blatty passed away. I did hear that. That's, that's sad news. Yeah, I never, uh, I've actually never read uh, the novel, the book. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, it's been years, though. I haven't. 
I was probably, oh God, maybe an early teen when I read that. Mm. Oh, F. Paul Wilson had said that that's still he said surpassed as the best, uh, the best um, uh, horror novel ever written. Yeah, he loved that one. I remember. I'll have to go back and find it, read yeah. it again. And I saw an interview uh, recently from him that came out, and he said uh, when he wrote it, he was like, um, he was like, kind of you know questioning his own like uh, his own beliefs. Oh yeah. So like that was like part of his exploration of his own faith. So it's interesting. Yeah. And I, yeah, I would like to read, especially uh, talk Dileen and knowing that they cut out some of the more spiritual stuff of oh, a yeah. movie. So yeah, it's one that I need to. I, I'm not versed in a lot of horror novels. I need to go and, re- and read a lot. Readings for punks. <laughs> I like their take on, uh, you know, always. If you don't have a good story, you're never gonna have a good read. Agreed. Because you can have, you know, uh, everything else is an addition to. Yeah. Uh, this for the effects, great actors, performances. All that stuff's definitely an addition to, but if if the story's not there, you know, it's you might dress it up a little bit, but it's still not going to be, still not going to be anything. Right. Whereas you have the foundation of a great story, and then you add all these other things to it. Uh, oh yeah, then you you can have magic at that point. Exactly. So a few movies opened last week. Uh, I don't, none of us saw them, but uh, Split, which I've, I've <laughs> seen people really like, uh, the M Night Shyamalan Ding Dong movie. Yeah, I've I've heard I I haven't heard many people that have gone to see it, but the ones mm-hmm. that have have enjoyed it. Yeah, I know Ebony really liked it. It looks good to me. Yeah. Now I know it's probably not like a real look on split personalities. I don't think this idea of someone having third, but that doesn't that doesn't bother to me. The matter to no. me. It looks like an entertaining movie. Oh yeah. Of course, I've well, said hopefully. this before about M Night, we- but. Uh, yeah. We haven't really seen anything good from M. Night in a while. No, no. He's due. Yeah. Then the uh, the opposite spectrum is one I have no interest in seeing. That's the Bye Bye Man. What was that one? It's like, uh, if you don't say it, don't think it. Oh, yeah. Anyone who says, says the guy's name or even thinks the guy's name, he just appears. The Bye Bye So it's Man. even like meaner than like Bloody Mary or something, you don't. Mm-hmm. Even have to mention the name. Just think about it. That's kind of lame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks bad. Looks have looks you, like poop. Does, <laughs> do you know anyone that has seen that one? No, I don't. All right. Maybe. If if I do know anyone who has that, they haven't told me. They've kept it a secret. <laughs> They're like the nuts. No, I don't want. I don't want Neil to know. Maybe it's fantastic, though. I mean, I can't just totally rip this movie apart. I've seen apart. it four times. Really? Yeah. I just didn't want to tell you. Man. Holding out. Holding out on us. It's just been a while since I've been to a movie. I haven't been anything... Hasn't been anything out that I'm really dying to see lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least you went to see like the new Star Wars. Oh yeah, that was that seems like a long time ago. No, <laughs> does it? Yeah, but I haven't seen anything new since then. I don't believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last one I think I've seen was Doctor Strange multiple times. Mm-hmm. 
I gotta get my my ass to the movies one of these days. Get my ass to the movies. <laughs> get the ass to the movie. <laughs> that that would be a sweet like tagline. <laughs> it sure would be. Uh, <laughs> maybe yeah, maybe like his next flick. You know. mm-hmm. Get your ass to the movie. So uh, there's a six disc uh, Phantasm box set coming out. That looks so awesome. Now. Yeah, and I thought originally it, would just, it was just going to be in the UK because there's always these weird laws about uh, who owns the rights to like the second one. I believe is Universal maybe the first. Oh, is two. it? But I guess this is just coming out. Like, hey, that's good. Yeah. Don't it's give a, a damn who owns the rights. We just want to see it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. Uh, by the way, Annabelle apologizes. Uh, for not being on. We'll catch her next week. Exactly. Exactly. So let's see here. Uh the what this I knew this was gonna happen because I loved The Walking Dead this season. Right. And I remember the fir- the first step the first uh the first episode. Some people love, some people were mortified and so so bloody and the people were, were we're, yeah, because uh, you don't watch a zombie show for blood or anything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, yeah. So then, then people stopped watching it. Then people were crying that Negan was like beating ass. Because God forbid the villain like uh, you know gets a little up on up on your hero before the, you know they they succeed. It should just be nonstop. <laughs> The hero just—it should just be, you know, a John Wayne movie. Oh yeah, because all good barrel. storytelling is the hero not overcoming everything, <laughs> yeah. just you know, uh, whooping ass right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going back to back to biblical stories, it's just like yeah, it's just like uh, you know, Goliath just gets defeated instantly by David. Oh yeah, and uh, Odysseus—he doesn't really have to do much. He just goes back to Greece and hooks up with the old lady. Mm-hmm. You know the Odyssey. Ah, not really much happens at all. Mm-hmm. I'm totally confused. <laughs> you know Ulysses. No, I know that, but someone oh. I just wrote to, to. I'm sorry to sorry to to, to cross the uh, subject here, but I put up to to talk to the the Jones boys here, and someone just wrote. I know those guys are from my hometown. Well, then tell them to call in. Is he saying he knows us, or does he think we're talking about someone completely different? I don't know. Is he from our hometown? I don't know. I'm told. No, he's from Charlotte. No, he's from. Oh, this is weird. This guy's crazy. But anyway, so yeah. But the yeah, exactly. The point is, you you want the you want the villain to to win for a while. Yeah, it wouldn't be very exciting otherwise. No, I mean Bat. Batman just doesn't beat the shit out of the Joker all the time. The Joker right. wins for and then he comes up and that's just basic storytelling. Yeah, you would think, but oh yeah, I know God, people were kind of bummed out by this one. And they're like crying like a bunch of bitches. I don't say like a bunch of bitches, it's like a bunch of pansies. But Yeah, pretty much. So yeah, they're all crying about it. And so uh, I thought I thought the series was great. The season was great. And so, anyway, long story short, too late, but that, now it's coming out. Walking Dead's toning down the violence for next season. No. Mm-hmm. 
Is it cool? So they're going to pander. They're not going to stick with the. Oh, man, that depresses me. Yeah, because I'm just. I'm, I'm like, Negan's just going to be a shithead now. Yeah. I hope they don't just go right to defeat Negan either. That would kind of suck. I mean, there's a story there. And I know there's people that complain like they. You know, they're just never-ending wandering around, the guys. But And then, like, they hear they're stopping and telling the story where there's, like, conflict and they're losing. Just let that story play out. You know the guy's not going to eventually win, or else it'd be the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. He's the king of the world, uh, then. And But, I mean, if that's the way their story goes, then let it go that way. Yeah. So anyway, we were here's a quote from uh, someone who writes on the show or runs the show, whatever, from Variety. Uh, we were able to look at the feedback and the level of violence. We did tone it down for episodes we were still filming for later on in the season. This oh. is not a show that is torture porn. After the response to the finale, she said they gave strong consideration into making sure we don't cross that line. Ah. That's lame. Yeah, I think that's a, the problem is a lot of people who watched it aren't aren't really horror. It's not a, necessarily a horror audience. It's a mainstream audience who got into it because it's popular. And then when the show really went in... I mean, it's always been horror, though. Yeah. But well, when they really got into, like, the ultraviolence, it, it just, just turned them off. Uh, it's just... I don't know. When you start dumbing uh, things down... It really bothers me. Yeah, I don't want it to become Twilight. Yeah. It just, it's funny because I, I just recently found um, they have, um, I don't know the uh, YouTube channel, um, but somebody got together all the uh, episodes of uh, Harlan Ellison's watching on the Sci Fi Buzz. Mm. And, uh, and it's funny because they're like 20 years old, but it's pretty much the same subjects that he's talking about then about, you know, like um, it was the world of science fiction and stuff that he was talking about being dumbed down to the masses. And when you don't make your audience uncomfortable, then you're really doing them a disservice. You're, you know if they don't have to think and go, geez, what would I do in that situation? If you just spoon fed them crap that they, you know, knew was coming, you didn't shock, surprise, you know, anything else that how, you know, how boring every story would be, Mm -hmm. you know, and this was jazz. He was talking about 20 years ago. And, uh, it's just kind of funny, that weird parallel there. That's something though you should check out though, Neil, because like uh we used to love the sci fi buzz. Mm-hmm. And uh I don't know how many total episodes he did, but I I got through like twenty of them and I think there's like eighty of them on there. Mm-hmm. So if you need your Harlan Ellison fix, mm-hmm. go and check out uh Harlan Ellison's watching. On the sci-fi buzz. Mm-hmm. And they were from probably about, what, what would you say, 20 years ago? Yeah, it was a long time ago. It was always uh, one of my favorite uh, parts of the uh, parts of uh, sci-fi buzz. I miss that show. Kind of uh, too. kind of ahead of its time. Oh, yeah. 
because the one that I had just watched, um, he was talking about uh, Asimov had died the year before. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he read, like, you know, nice little eulogy for him and stuff. Really interesting. Yeah. Uh, by the way, John Reddy wants to see both the Bye Bye Man and Split. He said, fuck you, assholes. I want to see them both. Tell him to do it. Get a big thing of popcorn. Yeah. I can't eat popcorn. Well, tell him not to get the popcorn for you. All right. All right fair enough. Fair if enough. you go with him, tell him to get your nachos. All right. Yeah, I do like the nachos. Uh, by the way, a few weeks ago here on the show, uh, I did the interview with uh, these guys from uh, Moggy Creatures, who was uh, the director, the writer, the director, and of the Star City Cats. And it looks wicked cool. It's a practical effects killer cat movie. I love the, tr- the trailer for it. It looks yeah. so cool. And so right now they have a crowdfunding up to uh, help, you know, uh, add more special effects and, you know, get the, the movies going to be made, but, you know, to add, to make it even cooler. Mm-hmm. So that's over on Indiegogo.com slash project slash Moggy dash creatures dash horror. Just look up uh, Moggy Creatures crowdfunding and you're going to find it. And uh, they got like a lot of really cool uh, incentives. You can get like action figures and stuff. Oh, nice! Yeah, I believe he's going to actually give away one of the cats too. If you give away, you know, donate a lot. Those cats are some pretty creepy looking bastards, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't realize that was like a British term for like a house cat was a moggy. Oh, I didn't realize that at all either. Yeah, yep. They're one of those cool little British terms. It's not. Uh, you know, you can't say it for like a lion or a tiger or you know some other kind of cat. It's only for a house cat. Mm. But a house cat is a moggy. Man, I should have should have brought that up to him. He probably I mean, he knew, but I mean, I should have asked him. <laughs> yeah, like where the hell did you figure that word out? Yeah, I just thought maybe I was dumb. Like I'm like I'm gonna just pretend I don't know what that you know I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure, moggy creature. Yeah, exactly. of course, exactly. Was what that, dope? It was uh, Tom Baker's birthday yesterday. It's totally badass. Yeah. My all-time he, favorite Doctor Who. He made an awesome video. He's just laughing like a madman. Oh, he looks so happy. He he would be such a great guest. I yeah, think. I tried to get him on. I don't know if it's going to happen, but he uh, probably not because he's never replied. But it'd be pretty sweet. Oh yeah, that would be tremendous. Mm-hmm. He should do it. I think he'd like it. I think he would too. If you ask my opinion, I'll I'll tell him definitely to do it. Yeah. Do it. Do it to it. So, did you ever see, uh, uh, what is it, Attack on Titan? It's like this uh, Asian movie. It looked pretty cool. I guess it's based off like a comic book, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. It's a two-part movie. Yep. Like with giants, titans. I never yeah, saw the giants are crazy because yeah. they, they have like no... Like skin, right? Yeah, they looked really weird. Yeah. So what about that one? Uh, well, they're making an American version. They're remaking oh. it. <laughs> that so, might that, suck. That's usually a that's usually bad times. Yeah, the the only one maybe different. Like, did you end up seeing the trailer for Ghost in the Shell? No. Because I think you might dig that one, because it's got that, like, Westworld vibe. Mm. That's probably why they did it now. You know, like, the timing's probably perfect for now. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of, you know, it's got that same 
uh, I'm an android, but I'm becoming self-aware kind of thing. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a you know a theme that always really interests me. Yeah, yep, and it's kind of cool, Neil. In um, this season's Agents of Shield, um, the first half what was about the Ghost Rider, and it was really good. And now this second half of the season, uh, I think it was Jim Steranko, I'm not sure, but way back in the day with uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. comic books, Mm -hmm. they had these things that they called the LEDs. I mean, uh, yeah, no, LMDs, Mm -hmm. life model decoys. And they were like these, like, androids that, uh, so when they killed off Nick Fury, then you found out you know, the next issue, they didn't really kill off Nick Fury. They killed off this live model decoy. Right. And uh, so on that, their their life model decoy has become self-aware. And like uh, the second half of the season is going to be all about that. And it's really pretty cool so far. Oh, nice. So if you if you were thinking about watching the show, you really don't need to know a lot of the backstory. Mm-hmm. If you just catch up on these these last two episodes, you you'd be right in the flow. All right, very cool. Uh, TerrorCon's coming up um, in February, and that's in Rhode Island. Ooh, and uh, it's got an awesome lineup. They've got Malcolm McDowell. Ooh, uh, a bunch of people from The Walking Dead. Uh, Dennis O'Hare from American Horror Story, which I always think's uh, an unsung hero of, of. I always think he's one of the best parts. Was uh, he the guy that was like the hotel manager? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh guy. my god, I love that guy. Mm-hmm. He's been great every season. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and he's not one that like people talk about. They always talk about yep. you know certain characters, but not him. And I, I, I was gonna think he's one to stand on the show. Mm. Uh, Kane Hodder. Nice. Ari Mahailoff. Two former guests here. Uh, Tyler Maine, also former guest. Oh, yeah. Uh, Scout Taylor Compton. Uh, She's been in a bunch of stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. David Naughton from American World from London. Oh, my God. Sweet. Another former guest. Yep. John Kassir from Tales from the Crypt. These nice. The Crypt uh, friends of the show, Nicholas Vince. Oh, yeah. Barbie Wilde and Simon Bamford. Wow. Uh, former guest of uh, our sister show, In Your Head, Kevin Nash. Wow. See, Robert Brian Wilson, who's also been on the show from Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, yeah. That's well, a loaded show, Neil. Yeah. Danny Lloyd, who played Danny in, in The Shining. Wow. That's pretty awesome. Get some Ghost Hunters. Um, there's a bunch of, uh, there's a demonologist panel. Sounds interesting. And there's a uh, there's also a bunch of artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy who does uh, The Walking Dead, the comic book. Oh wow! Um, someone now does... now you have me curious, Neil. Now I got to look this up too. What what is it called? TerrorCon. It's just uh, TerrorCon dot com. It's a pretty loaded show. So uh, I don't know. It'd be pretty sweet to go. Now, what's the date on it? It's uh, February 25th and 26th. It's uh, two days. Saturday and Sunday in February. But yeah, it's it's loaded lineup. And uh, this, you don't get too many in uh, New England. Oh, yeah. And Connecticut's not very far. Mm-mm. 
Uh, Rhode Island, believe. Wasn't it Rhode Island? I think it's Rhode Island. Either way, it's not very far. Yeah, you can't go wrong either way. Exactly. Oh, also, uh, there's going to be cool cars there. Uh, I believe, uh, believe that's Christine will be there. Ooh. Mm, interesting. All right. So I think maybe we'll get to the uh, to the interview here. Absolutely, Neil. That All sounds right. good to me. And uh, next week, Annabelle will return with us. Yes. And we will listen to people doing some impressions, we hope. Yes, we will. It'll be good times here. It'll be good times. Absolutely. Indeed. All right, so we're uh, going to get uh, Rudy on the line, and we're going to talk about his uh, new thriller, The Call of the Wolf. All right, nice. we shall be right back after some Amatica. Without your head, I'm Nasty Neil, and I'm joined by Rudy Womack, the second director of Call of the Wolf, available February 7th on video on demand. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Neil. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. We were talking a little bit uh, before we started here, and I think this will be a, this will be a fun uh, conversation. So, uh, without giving too much away, because you don't want to spoil the movie, uh, could you give people an idea of what Call of the Wolf is about? 
Certainly. Uh, so it's a independent thriller drama that I directed when I was still a student, if you can believe it. And it's about uh, two strangers who are kidnapped and they're trapped in the woods in the dead of winter time. And they're being hunted by a sniper who calls himself Wolf. When you said uh, you you uh, made it when you were still a uh, a student, so how long ago was that? Uh, I graduated when uh, in 2013, mm-hmm. and I had shot the film as part of my thesis for graduation. The school gave us uh, an option to do either a short film or a feature. Most of my classmates did the short film, and I I chose to do the feature film. So it took a little bit extra time so I was actually still doing my thesis after I officially graduated which was kind of weird but um so it it took us some time to to get the film together and shoot it but afterwards you know I was able to cut the film get it scored get it colored get it mixed and uh I was able to cut a trailer for it and sent it off to distribution companies and I started getting offers almost right away. Now, when you were making it, did you, uh, at the time, did you think, you know, eventually I would like to release this or was that something that came about while you're making it? Like, or after you made it, like, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is good or something better than I thought it would be. And it's something like, I I would actually like to get released. Well, when I was shooting it, I, I kind of always was thinking I would like to get it released, but I, I didn't know if it would be good enough or anything because I, I, I still thought, well, it's still a student project. Nobody's really going to want to touch a student film, especially such a low-budget student film like mine. And I, I actually cut the film in its entirety. I did an edit, and one of my friends came over and was watching it. And as I was watching it with them, uh, at the time, I went and got a job as an editor. So I got a lot of experience as an editor. I was watching the film. I was like, man, I could do a much better job with this thing. And so I cut the film a second time all the way through, completely redid the sound, completely redid the color and everything. And afterwards, I showed it to my boss and, I mean, my, my boss is kind of a hard guy. He's kind of, you know, very, very strict and very opinionated. And he watched the film, and he thought it was a client's film that had been sent to us. He didn't know it was my movie oh, wow. until the credits started rolling at the end. And he was like, this is really good. You need, to, you need to send it off to distribution companies right away. And so that's really the thing that kind of gave me the confidence to go ahead and try for it. And I did. <laughs> That's by the way, uh, what did your uh, what did your teacher think of it? Uh, they thought it was really really solid. Uh, I showed them a rough cut, so it didn't it didn't really have any color or sound to it. It mm-hmm. it still kind of had some rough edits in there. Uh, but they they liked it. They said I think one of them said it has all the pieces to make a really good film. I just need to find the time to like actually put it all together. Mm-hmm. But you know, in between working an editor's job, which is a minimum twelve hour day every day, mm-hmm. and just life, it took me a long time to actually get the thing put together in its in its form that you see it now. Yeah. So I have a question about uh, <laughs> editing. Is it? easier or harder for you to edit uh your own material as opposed to something uh if you're editing something you know that you didn't make 
I find it easier to edit my own material. Um, I know some people don't think the same way, but I I find it easier because I I start planning what the edit is going to look like when I'm in pre-production. Mm-hmm. So I start planning what the transitions are going to be, where the music is going to come in, where the sound design is going to come in. Uh, I start planning on kind of what the emotional pace of the scene is. So when I actually go to shoot the film, I already have it cut together in my head. Mm -hmm. So the process of editing is super, super simple for me. I literally just start taking all those ingredients and kind of putting it together. So Mm -hmm. I find it easier to do my own work when it's somebody else's work, especially if they didn't plan through stuff. You start to discover a lot of problems that they didn't originally anticipate so as an editor you have to creatively overcome a lot of those problems which can be a challenge and in doing that and kind of working through some of those problems that i've had i've gotten to become a better editor and also a better director because i know what works and what doesn't when you're editing someone else's stuff uh are they really (laughs) hands-on because i would assume they'd have to be so they kind of uh so you follow, you know, what they want to get uh, across and whatever you're editing as the, po- otherwise I think if there's no input, like you'd, you'd almost be forming your own vision with what they filmed. Uh, I've had, I've had both where they're super hands-on and where they're very, you know, laissez-faire. They just kind of let me do my own thing. Uh, there are definitely are challenges with both. There are advantages to both. I, I prefer producers and directors that kind of split the difference that have a vision that they want to execute, but are also willing to give a little bit of creative control over to the editor. Cause the editor is the second director. They can really make or break a film. It's, it's almost a crime that we don't recognize editors for their contribution to movies today because they they can really heighten a scene. They can really make it, you know, so much scarier or intense or suspenseful. They can make it a more romantic scene or not. They can completely lose control of it and, you know, just wash out the film entirely. Mm-hmm. So having a director who is very passionate about what they want and has a very clear vision about what they want is good. But they also need to listen to what the editor has to say and what their opinions are, because an editor can really just, you know, make a good film great. Mm-hmm. They genuinely can. So uh, back to uh, Call the Wolf. What what inspired the story? Was there any uh, any, any inspirations? <laughs> Pure desperation. <laughs> um, I was actually trying to get another film made. And I, I just couldn't secure the funding to get this other film made. And the clock was ticking down on whether or not I would be able to do a feature film for my thesis for school. So with the very, very, very small budget that I had raised, I, I kind of sat back and I thought to myself, what kind of a movie do I want? What sort of resources do I have available to me? And how can I kind of bridge the gap between those two things and create a story that's both, you know, commercially engaging and entertaining for a general audience, but still bring some artistic and intrinsic value to it, something that I can 
exercise my abilities as a director and as a storyteller. So with not a lot of time, I kind of locked myself in my room. And in about three weeks, I came out with the first draft of Call of the Wolf, which at the time was titled When the Wolf Calls. And uh, I, I showed it to some people. I got some feedback and the film just started to grow and grow from there. And the the story of kind of a, a rich kid who's a little bit of a brat, who's kind of been laying back on his laurels his whole life. He's kind of, uh, you know, kind of been been pampered his entire life, hasn't really had to fight for anything. And his transformation of being dropped into the middle of the forest in the wintertime and just forced to survive that that sort of evolved over over a course of a few weeks. And before I knew it, you know, I, I had this great feature and I had a wonderful crew and cast set and we were heading off to the mountains of Wyoming to go shoot the movie. No, um, like how uh, is that where you lived anyway? Or was, uh, you know, the, the mountain, did you live like in that area? Uh, yes and no. I kind of migrated between Cheyenne and that area, the Snowy Range Mountains. So I was very familiar with the Snowy Range Mountains. I, I spent a lot of time up in those mountains when I was a kid. But I'm mostly from Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is about two hours away from those mountains. And it's completely different. It's just flat prairie for as far as the eye can see. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very windy. But when I was writing the script... I, I knew there were a lot of cabins that were available and I knew that, you know, the winter time was coming because I was writing the script in October, I believe is what it was. Mm-hmm. And I knew that uh, a lot of indie filmmakers without money, they kind of do a cabin in the woods sort of a movie. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to beeline for a horror film. I wanted to do something that was a little bit more character based and a little bit more drama based because I, I find that's where my strengths as as a storyteller are and i i realized that with all the snow kind of locking in this cabin it would be a wonderful backdrop to shoot a movie against it would look beautiful but that cold that blizzard that winter would really force our character into survival mode because if you're outside for you know 20 minutes you can die of exposure so it makes for an interesting sort of challenge that this character always has kind of hanging over his head that he has to survive in this incredibly difficult environment. And, uh, how challenging was it to actually film in the, in the, in the forest or in the mountains in the snow? <laughs> Sometimes I, uh, I look back on the film and I kind of scratch my head and wonder how we did it. <laughs> um, we, we had to snowmobile two locations, so you can't drive there because the snow is waist deep. So you actually have to snowmobile in. So that alone limited the amount of people that we were able to bring. So we only had seven crew members, myself included, and three actors. So there were 10 people total. And it also made things like food very difficult for the crew. And, uh, the the biggest challenge I, I would guess is we couldn't show footprints in the snow. <laughs> yeah. So we, we would have to walk 
in in this huge big circle around where we wanted to shoot in order to get like clean snow in order to shoot it and just walking in waist deep snow is the most difficult thing in the world so whereas a normal wide shot you know you put the camera on a tripod you walk out you know 200 feet you turn the camera around you shoot and that takes you maybe five or 10 minutes, but just for a wide shot for us would take like 45 minutes to set up just because the process of getting the camera into location <laughs> was so incredibly yeah. difficult. That's not, that's not something I would even uh, have thought about, but it, it makes perfect sense now that you mentioned that. It'd be, I guess it'd be the same way if you were filming in the sand. You wouldn't want to. Uh, yeah. Have a, <laughs> Although the sand would probably be easier to fix than the snow. But you, did that all kind of add to uh, the feel of the movie, since everyone, in a way, is kind of going through what the character is? Uh, not to that degree, but, you know, having to uh, tough it out in the environment. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting. We shot this film before The Revenant was ever shot, let alone released. Mm-hmm. But I was reading an interview... And Alejandro Inaritu said something like, yes, the, the filming conditions were very difficult, but had we shot it in a studio where everybody was comfortable, yeah, sure, everybody would have been comfortable and fine, but the film would have been terrible. And having done a film kind of similar in a similar environment, I, I agree so much. The the challenge of shooting in the middle of a blizzard at 10,000 feet of altitude in the dead of winter in the mountains is is really tough, but it brings such a quality to the picture that you would never be able to capture anywhere else. And it definitely enhances the actors' performances because, you know, the, the simple fact of they don't have to pretend that they're cold because it's negative 15 out and they're getting a face full of snow <laughs> really, really informs their performance and makes them push that much harder in order to get emotionally where they need to be. Mm-hmm. Now, I had read that you uh, worked uh, previously with uh, with the lead in the in the film, Alexander uh, Ristic. Did you uh, did you create that role with him in mind? When I was writing it originally, I was just kind of writing it generally without anybody in mind. And then when I got into like the second draft, I started thinking about Alex. So I called him up and I had him do a quick screen test. I just shot him with a GoPro in my living room and had him run through some of these lines. And I talked with him and he was excited from the moment I started talking with him. I was like, man, we're going to go in the middle of nowhere. It's going to be in the snow. It's going to be freezing. It's going to be miserable. It's going to be cold. And he was like, yeah, 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 let's do it. It's going to be great. And I'm like, wonderful. That's a great attitude to have. Well, a lot of quote unquote actors here, you know, in, unless it's something local or something super easy, they, they won't do it. But I mean, you, you have all these shots of Alex literally bare hands face down in the snow crawling and that's him doing it. And it didn't matter if it was take six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He he was full energy. He was very excited to do it. He was an incredible decision. And I'm so lucky to have worked with him on this project. Mm-hmm. Do you do you uh, do you see any of yourself in any of the characters in the movie? 
Uh, yes and no. I, I kind of start with archetypes when I write and then I boil them down to who they are as people. So when I started thinking about Lester, not so much myself, but I thought about all the terrible like stereotypes of my generation, like millennials that were lazy and were narcissistic and, uh, we, we, think only about ourselves. And so I, I put a lot of those elements into Lester, but I put a lot of good elements as well. Although he is a little bit of a brat towards the beginning of the film, he takes up all these challenges and he he drives through them. It becomes sheer determination and sheer force of will that gets Lester from point A to point B to point C all the way to the end of the film. And he changes dramatically as a person in doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I put a lot of what I see my, my own generation, we are given a lot of very difficult challenges and we overcome them. And I feel like we don't get a lot of credit for overcoming them, Uh but we do it and we persevere. And I put a lot of that into Lester I just wanted to uh, ask about Wolf's accent because I'm probably guilty of this myself. Uh, I think sometimes if you, uh, people who aren't from the South, if they hear like a kind of a Southern accent, you kind of think that character is like dumb. And I think uh, that added to it because obviously uh, you guy hears that and maybe he's kind of off put by that. But at the same time, this is a guy who knows how to survive in the elements and has one up on, on Lester. So, it's interesting that you bring it up because there there is this stereotype of having a southern accent and and being dumb. And uh, about half of my family, my mother's side of the family, comes from the south. Mm-hmm. And my uh, great uncle had a very 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 thick southern accent, and he worked on the space shuttles. He was an engineer on the yeah. space shuttles. He's one of the most brilliant men that you'll ever meet. But just his accent alone, you could kind of tell that people didn't respect him as much mm-hmm. and I, I liked that dichotomy i liked that uh kind of tearing down a stereotype playing off of what the audience's expectation of something is and then turning it on its head so it's one of the reasons that i decided to give wolf such a heavy southern accent but show that he's actually a brilliant survivalist and he's actually very well spoken if you listen to some of the things that he says he's quite an intelligent character mm-hmm. yeah like i like i said i like that about the movie too because uh i think there would be a lot of people in the audience who would think that initially like i said even myself uh you know even though i wouldn't want to uh i try not to but it's just uh it's just something sometimes you you think of uh when you hear that accent yeah. <laughs> so no offense to you or your family. Or no, not not at all. It's actually uh, your reaction to it is one of the reactions I wanted to elicit from my audience. So it's quite a compliment, yeah. actually. <laughs> also about the snow. Um, was it ever hard to shoot uh, just because of the light, uh, like reflecting off the snow? Oh, yes. That was a huge challenge for us. So the lighting... Um, was incredibly difficult because it wasn't just a bright day. It was a bright day times two because you had all of that light beaming off of the snow. And it was also very difficult for continuity because the weather on those mountains changes like all the time and without warning. So we would be in the middle of a scene shooting a scene and then suddenly a blizzard would hit. 
So we would have to stop shooting that scene and come back to it a day or so later and just trying to match the continuity between what we had already shot and what we were going to continue shooting was very difficult. But in order to overcome that, we would prep multiple scenes every evening. And depending on what the weather reports were for the next day, mm-hmm. that's what we would go ahead and shoot. So uh, a huge prop to my actors because they would literally have to memorize multiple different scenes with the expectation of if the weather's good, we're going to shoot scenes, you know, 14 and 53. And if the weather's bad, we're going to shoot scenes, you know, 126 or whatever. Uh, You mentioned earlier about adding the score and everything uh, to the movie. And there really isn't a lot of score in the movie. And I thought, um, I actually thought it was a good use of silence in some scenes. It was like uh, right when Lester gets off the phone with Wolf the initial the first time, and then it's just like a lot of silence. And I thought that that really worked in the movie. And uh, was that was that uh, anything you thought about? Because it, it seems like there is a lot of uh, silent moments in the movie. Uh, that all plays into the pacing of the film. Um, when I first pitched the idea to my teachers, they all had a heart attack that I wanted to make a really slow paced thriller because doesn't make any sense at all usually thrillers are fast-paced and edge-of-your-seat sort of films and i wanted to do something that was a little bit more exaggerated and slower and one of the things i talked to them about was having a complete you know lack of in-your-face sound design and just letting the silence settle and letting the audience just kind of absorb what is going on visually more than anything Mm -hmm. So when I talked with my composer, like all composers, he wanted the whole thing wall-to-wall music, so I kind of had to dial him back a little bit. But he came up with this great idea of using an instrument called a bazantar, which is a stand-up bass with sitar, which is the Indian guitar, uh-huh. with those with those strings kind of put alongside the strings on the, bazan, on the stand-up bass, so they're sympathetic strings. So you get these really deep groaning, you know, bassy sort of sounds, but you also get this kind of odd metallic-y high pitched sound as well when when he plays that instrument. So it created this atmosphere and this mood for for the score that I just fell in love with from the very first moment I listened to it. But I knew I had to use it sparingly because otherwise it would get very old very quickly. Uh-huh. So I I actually marked all the places that I wanted music, and then I forced myself to remove half. And I think I removed just a little bit more than half. I think I removed actually like 60%. Mm-hmm. So I, I forced a lot of silence and a lot of stillness into the film. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel it has this effect of being a little bit more meditative and a little bit more contemplative, which again, reflects on what the character Lester is going through as as he has to power through this entire situation he's found himself in. I think it totally works. I also thought it kind of gives a sense of, uh, you know, at that moment, he's totally alone. It's just him. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the the isolation, on, on that note, the, the isolation was, was a big challenge originally writing writing the script because to make just one character on the screen interesting Mm -hmm. for, you know, a 90 minute runtime or a hundred minutes is what it really ended up being. 
was a challenge, but having that silence, I think, just reinforced the point of he's kind of on his own. Mm-hmm. And there's really only three characters in the whole movie, and uh, so I think that would have added pressure on uh, you know casting people in the movie because if there's only three people, if one of them you know doesn't do a good job, that kind of takes it, especially the, the main guy. So uh, I know you knew Alexander, but uh, how did you find the other two uh, cast members? Well, I uh, I met both of them previously, and I had actually worked with both of them on other projects as well. I met Matthew Oliva, who plays Wolf, and originally the, the movie that I was trying to raise funding for, Matt Oliva was actually going to be the lead of that movie. And when we didn't, you know get that movie made because we couldn't get the money together for it. I sat back and I talked with him and, you know, things being as it were, he was like, listen, I'm kind of limited on what I can do job wise and everything. So uh, unless I'm like the lead of a feature, I, I can't really do a lot. And I was like, great. So I'll just use your voice a lot. And he was like, yeah, great. No problem. <laughs> And so he and I started kind of developing the character of Wolf uh, from the voice up. We were more focused on what what his vocal content is, what exactly his dialogue was going to be, and just the, the quality of what his voice was going to be. And we developed that for a while. And, you know, I, I rehearsed quite a lot with him and Alex but as I was going through draft after draft, I realized uh, Lester needs a little bit of a catalyst. He needs somebody to reinforce the change that he's going to go through. And so that's why I started to v- develop the character of Viviana. And she doesn't even come in until about, what is it, 40 minutes into the film before she's like actually on the screen and present. And she really becomes a reinforcer of the changes that Lester goes through. And she does it not by encouragement, but by discouragement. Almost every single time she's on the screen, she's having a fight with him. She's arguing with him about something or trying to convince him of something. But either way, she's pushing him in a certain direction. And even though he's begrudgingly moving in that direction he he does eventually and i think that's very important for his character and as i was kind of working out this character viviana i i really only had one person in mind and that was cynthia bravo so i talked with cynthia about it and she got very excited about the film so she she hopped no problems and i i was very lucky to have her as well mm-hmm. yeah she does a great job uh, I'm gonna ask too. Uh, it's kind of a silly question, but uh, can you do you know how to build the fire yourself if you were to be in the same situation? Oh yeah, I know. I know how to camp outside in the in the snow and everything. So the scene where they go and they build the snow cave, mm-hmm. um, I actually had to teach the actors how to build the snow cave, and I built it myself. Oh nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. In in my experience, uh, having the branches overhead and everything, the, the way they build it in the movie, it's not a bad way to do it, but we, we did have to change some things up just for the actual shooting of the scene just to make it a little bit more practical. Mm-hmm. So we built the snow cave like three times bigger than you actually should. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And we we built this snow cave, the interiors, we built it into a snow drift on the backside of the cabin. But the exteriors, we built it in an uh, adjacent field that we were shooting nearby. Mm-hmm. So we actually had to build two of these snow caves. <laughs> but yeah, I I taught them how to do that. I I I taught Alex how to light a fire, and so every single morning he would go up into the cabin and he'd light a fire for the crew. So we would have some warmth while we were having our breakfast. Uh-huh. So it it was actually a interesting experience, kind of teaching some of my actors some survival techniques yeah. and then watching them actually employ them just on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. I think that w- that adds to the uh, movie or any kind of movie if uh, if the people like have some basic knowledge of how to do that, you know, like you taught them how to do, then it looks like they're, they actually know what they're doing as opposed to just kind of moving their arms and like, yeah, this is, you know, how you build the fire. You know what I mean? Yeah. So well, and it, it was also striking that balance because the characters, they, they need to do it and they need to do it well enough that it looks good on camera. Right. But at the same time, I purposely made them make a lot of mistakes because they're really fish out of water. They don't, super know exactly what they're doing and it's quite interesting i showed it to one of my friends uh up in colorado and as he's as he was watching the movie he was kind of like shrugging his shoulders here and there and like oh man they're doing this wrong oh man they're doing this wrong and i'm like i know they they should be doing it wrong Uh (laughs) so where did you pick up those uh these skills ah that's just growing up in wyoming uh it's it's just going outside and needing to know how to do certain things. I've always been interested in survival and I've always been interested in like hiking the mountains, the woods. I I love going up to the mountains. It's my favorite thing in the world. It's actually kind of terrible living in Los Angeles because there are no mountains around here to go hiking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but it's just kind of basic stuff I learned how to do and I learned how to pick up. And when you're up there and you're sort of surrounded by people, you just kind of pick up stuff, just talking with people and then showing you how to do certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were shooting up there, we had a generator that barely worked and would like kind of conk out all the time. And it just so happened our boom operator really knows what he's doing when it comes to that sort of thing. So I just kind of, you know, hovered over his shoulder as he would fix the generator occasionally. And I got good enough at it that I could do it. So now I know how to fix generators. (laughs) That's pretty sweet. (laughs) So, uh, um, when you finished the movie, uh, have did you uh, watch it with an audience, or who who's the, who's seen the movies uh, so far? Well, I I would show it to a lot of my filmmaker friends to get opinions and suggestions, and I would always show it at different stages of its edit. So. I feel like nobody actually saw the movie all the way put together. They just saw various stages of rough cuts and fine cuts and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And I would listen to what they have to say, how they would approach a scene a little bit differently, what they would do, you know, to enhance it, or if they would take away sound or add sound or whatever. And eventually I got the whole thing put together and I did a cast and crew screening. And a lot of people brought their friends and family and that was the first time 
I had ever shown it to people who hadn't, you know, seen the film before or didn't really know me if they were just like friends of cast and crew. And we got some genuine good reactions. Uh, one of the big things I kind of had my fingers crossed, I have very small, tiny moments of tongue-in-cheek humor kind of sprinkled throughout the film, just enough to kind of lighten the mood occasionally, just so it's not so dreary all the way through. Mm -hmm. And the, there was one, I think it was uh, where Lester's walking in the woods and he just trips and he falls down. <laughs> it's just very simple stuff like that. Uh -huh. And, you know, I I got a laugh out of the crowd and I was like, great, that's how I know this is it's drawing people in because they're invested enough that they can just laugh at somebody falling down. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you go back to uh, when you're talking about, you know, when to make a slower paced uh, film, the um, like, what was your reasoning behind that? Is that the kind of movies you like? Yes. And I didn't know that was the kind of movies I liked. <laughs> The, the one bad thing about being a filmmaker from a place like Wyoming is there are no movies up there. Mm. Uh, I mean, I grew up when Blockbuster was still a thing. Yeah. So I would go to Blockbuster when I could and I would rent movies, but I would just rent the same kind of movies like my parents wanted to watch. So usually just very generic, shoot them up, blow them up sort of movies. And I just thought that's what movies were. Until I went to film school and I discovered, wow, there's a whole world of movies out there. And somebody had shown me Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. I didn't even know Stanley Kubrick was a person, let alone a filmmaker, let alone 2000 Space, 2001 A Space Odyssey even existed. I didn't even know that until I went to college. And <laughs> I know, I, I feel so naive, but... <laughs> I watched that and my jaw hit the floor. I didn't know they made movies like that. I thought the only like sci-fis were the Matrix and Star Wars. Right. I had no idea that you could do these elaborate, very delicate films like this. And so I ate up everything Stanley Kubrick. And then someone said, hey, you need to watch The Thin Red Line. It's kind of a slow-paced film version of saving private ryan and i was like cool and i watched that and again my jaw hit the floor i didn't know that you could use narration and poetic imagery like terrence malick did so i started diving into these kinds of films and the more i watched them the more blown away i was and i decided that's the filmmaker that i want to be i want to make something that resonates and make something that says something more uh, profound. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew that's who I wanted to be from the get go. Mm -hmm. The only problem was my, my very first film called the wolf. I didn't have a lot of money and those films do take a lot more time and a lot more resources to, to make. And I didn't have a lot of time to actually develop the story so I I talked with my producer, who is also my wife, <laughs> and I said, uh, I want to do something very drama-based, very character-based, very slow-paced. And she said, that's great, but no one's ever going to watch your movie, and you're never going to have a career as a filmmaker. And I kind of nodded my head, and I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right. So as I was developing Wolf, I was trying to think of something that's commercial that's still entertaining for uh most audiences mm -hmm. 
something that still pulls people in, but keeps those elements that I love about movies, that slow pace, that silence, that dipping into a character and just letting an actor act in front of the screen without trying to overload it with all this other nonsense. And for for my first foray into film, I, I, I think I struck the balance pretty well. When you uh when you first went to film school was like your uh were you planning to make movies like you watch like uh like action movies until you discovered these other movies? When I first went to film school, I wanted to be the next Ridley Scott, and there's still a part of me that still wants to be the next Ridley Scott because he does these amazing set pieces with thousands of extras and crazy you know sequences of action and whatnot and he does so many different kinds of movies i i really admire his work and i i think his movies are just gorgeous uh it doesn't matter if it's black hawk down or kingdom of heaven or american gangster any of that like all the way from alien to you know gi jane i think he has such a style about him and that's what really drew me towards movies and they're still some of my favorite movies i absolutely love them but it didn't take long into film school that i realized listen i can admire the guy i can love his films but i'm just not that kind of a storyteller i'm a much different breed of storyteller (laughs) and so i i Thought I was going to go do these big epic pieces, and I would still kind of like to do big epic pieces, but I, I think my forte is more rooted in a little bit more layered character pieces, I believe. So uh, besides 2001, or maybe that is your favorite, what, what was your favorite Kubrick film when you started to uh, to watch them all? Well, that's so hard because they're all so good. <laughs> Uh, 2001 has definitely got a soft spot in my heart because that's the very first film I saw that made me realize there's a whole world of films out there that I'm missing. Um, I love Barry Lyndon. It's such a good movie and it's so underrated in my opinion. And Lolita is a wonderful film as well. I, I like Spartacus because there's some really cool character stuff in Spartacus. And I think that's the first time... Like, if you look at his whole filmography, I think that's the first time that Stanley Kubrick really starts to become Stanley Kubrick, in my opinion. Like, he he's done some impressive stuff to that point, but I don't know. There's something about Spartacus that just puts him on an entirely different level. So I'm not sure if I have a favorite Kubrick film, mm-hmm. but I love I love all of them in four different reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, who are some of the uh, who are some of the other uh, directors uh, once you discovered Kubrick that uh, you know movies that you would you know start to watch and seek out? Uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain is one of my favorite movies of all time, and it's kind of disappointing because anytime I show it to anybody, they hate it. <laughs> uh, and if you look at all the like the critical reviews, the critics just rip that movie to pieces. But uh-huh. it, I genuinely believe. That film is so far ahead of its time. I, I feel the longer it's out, the more people will start to appreciate that movie. Um, 
And on that note, Darren Aronofsky is a fantastic director altogether. Uh, I did mention Terrence Malick. I really like Terrence Malick's stuff. Paul Thomas Anderson is in a league of his own. I don't think there's any other director on earth that can even touch Paul Thomas Anderson. Obviously, Boogie Nights is a masterpiece, and obviously There Will Be Blood is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But when when you look at those two films and you put them next to each other, they're so different from each other, but they're just mind-blowing good films, both of them, and for entirely different reasons. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Nicholas Winding Refn. I'm, I'm a little bit of a hipster when it comes to him because I, I liked him before most people even knew he was a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, his, his film, Valhalla Rising, is just phenomenal. It's so good. And it hardly has any dialogue at all. So you want to talk about a slow-paced film with a lot of silence in it? Valhalla Rising is, is it. Mads Mikkelsen doesn't have a single line of dialogue, and he's the lead character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, uh, we are a horror show, so I have to ask, uh, what are some of your favorite horror movies? Oh, oh, I saw Jennifer Kent's The Babadook not too long ago, mm-hmm. and I was very impressed by that because uh, my, f- my favorite horror films tend to be dramas with scary scenes in it, I guess. And so the first time you watch it, it's really scary. But the subsequent million times you watch it, it it just gets better and better and better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw that. I saw It Follows because I was just on Netflix a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. And I had been waiting for, what, two years now it's been out to see it. And I finally saw it. And the sense of dread that film creates, just this, you're constantly looking over your shoulder. I've never seen a horror film so effectively do that in my life. And it is so inspiring to see that done. Uh, Of course, we were talking about Kubrick, so I I can't say anything without saying The Shining. Uh Obviously, The Shining is wonderful. But, you know, I love films like The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I actually, whenever I pitch people that movie, I tell them it's a courtroom drama. It's, it's, yes, it's a horror film, and there's some really scary stuff in it, and it's really effective. But I think it's effective because it's built around, you know, Tom Wilkinson and how much he cared for him, and subsequently how much he cares for you know, this girl who's possessed and how he's genuinely trying to do some right in this world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a great, great story. And it just makes scenes even scarier because the stakes are so high. Mm -hmm. And I also recently saw a horror comedy out of New Zealand and it's called Housebound. Have you seen Housebound, Housebound. by any chance? I don't, I don't believe I have, but I, I oh, this out. It needs to be the top of your list. It is so funny and so effectively scary all at the exact same time. <laughs> and and not it's not a comedy film with a horror backdrop like uh, like Shaun of the Dead or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's genuinely a good horror film with genuinely good comedic scenes mm-hmm. interwoven throughout the film. It's so brilliantly done. Yeah. It's called Housebound. I think it's on Netflix. I've, you got to see it. It's a wonderful film. I mentioned before on the show that I think, uh, in my, for the ones I like, uh, the best like horror comedies, because I think it's hard to pull off sometimes, are ones that work as a horror movie, 
but have you know uh, comedic value. To, like um, uh, Werewolf, American Werewolf in London, it yeah. only works as a horror movie. It's very scary and great scene stuff, but there's a lot of comedy in it, so it can work either way. Or Return of the uh, Return of the Living Dead, I think, is the same way. Yeah, Return of the Living Dead, super classic. I, I absolutely love that one. If we're gonna if we're gonna really turn back the clock, I, I would say now that I'm thinking of it, my favorite horror movie in the world would be The Bride of Frankenstein. It's it's a film I literally picked up because I needed to start educating myself on older films, mm-hmm. and I just expected it to be hokey, and instead. It's an incredible film with a lot of very relevant commentary on society, even relevant to today. Mm-hmm. And it's executed just so brilliantly. It doesn't matter how old it is. It's done so wonderfully. Mm-hmm. I love The Bride of Frankenstein. I, I agree 100%. Uh, the, the Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, I think, are two of the best uh, horror movies. Uh, and they totally still uh, still work today. Even, you know, it, they... The makeup and everything still works, but uh, oh yeah, it, it aged so gracefully, mm-hmm. and it's incredible to see a film like that. It's, I mean, it was made in the '30s, so we're we're looking at an 80 year old film here, and it it still looks completely legitimate. It doesn't look cheesy or hokey or anything. Mm-hmm. It was a few years ago. Uh, Annabelle and I were lucky to live by uh, some. Um theaters that show older movies and they do a 12 hour uh, horror movie marathon every uh, Halloween and uh, one of the headliners of the, I think it was two years ago was the original Frankenstein and I'd seen it a million times, she, it was the first time she ever watched it, but uh, and to see it on the big screen was like uh, you know, I've seen it on the TV millions of times, but to see it on the big screen there's something uh, there was something really special about that Yeah. Uh... First off, what an incredible experience to go see something like that on the big screen. Uh, I I took my wife about, I would say it was two years ago or something like that. She had never seen The Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. And there was a screening, and it had an original 35 print. Yeah. Original 35 print. And we went and we saw it, and man, like, she had never seen the film before. And I was so jealous because... <laughs> it's an original 35 on the big screen and everything. She's enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And of course she's like blown away that Johnny Depp was in it. And he's so young and everything, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but that's also a film where it's aged so incredibly well because the effects are just so well done and well thought out. Yeah. It's uh, such an effective movie I mean, to the, this day. The, yeah. The effects in it, I think are, are way better than the effects of the remake, especially yeah. like uh, when he's coming through the, the wall like that totally still works, and I know it was done. You know, I've you know, seen the documentaries. It's done with just like uh, I, you know, basically him just coming through like some kind of fabric. But and then and then the remake, it's done with CGI, and you, it, it looks totally lame compared to the original one. And it's like you know, twenty years later, thirty years later. Because of laziness, I I'm not on the band camp that says CGI is ruining films. Uh-huh. I don't agree with that, but I. I I take it to the extent of saying it's laziness that is ruining films. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't matter if it's CGI or practical. It, it's, it's why are you doing it? Is it the best way to do it? And if the answer is no, then then why? Mm-hmm. If there's a better way of doing it, put in the extra effort, go the extra mile, and that's what's going to make your film better, mm-hmm. period. Yeah, I mean, it really is just another tool for someone to use. And, uh, you know, if it's done properly... Uh... If if something looks good, it looks good, no matter how it's done. Yeah, of course. 
So, uh, horror, so like I said, this is a horror movie show. Uh, when did, did you always watch horror movies as a kid, or was this something that uh, you got into later? So, I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies as a kid, <laughs> which is kind of weird because I was allowed to watch action movies. And when you look at old action <laughs> right, movies, right. they're probably objectively worse yeah, because. Yeah. You know, Rambo with a machine gun mowing down like 50 people was uh-huh. completely fine, but horror movies for some reason wasn't. Yeah, um, the the first, I'm not sure if you would call it horror movie. I I don't I don't know. For me, it was because I was a little kid and it was scary. But the Mummy was the very first horror movie that I saw, mm-hmm. and that movie terrified me mm-hmm. when I was a kid. I was so scared about that movie, and now when I watch it. I think it's a comedy because it's so damn funny. Brendan Fraser is so funny. And John Hanna just kills it in that movie. He's so wonderful. So it's it's interesting how that perspective has changed, that that movie was super, super scary as a kid. But now when I watch it, I enjoy it for an entirely different reason. It's like an adventure comedy to me mm-hmm. is what it is now. Um but I didn't I didn't start really getting into horror films until like I was able to go to the video store and rent them on my own. Right. And in Wyoming, even though there was like Blockbuster and Hollywood video, they didn't really stock them very well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my first horror movies were kind of like cheesy B movies. Mm-hmm. And Originally, that's what I thought horror was, and I always liked it because it just seemed so genuine. And even to this day, when I watch horror films, I don't really go to the huge, big-budget horror films like The Conjuring or anything like that. Like, I'll, I'll tag along if a bunch of my friends are going, for sure, and I enjoy them. But I like the independent horror movies. I like the smaller movies. Um I recently saw, what was it, uh, See No Evil 2, directed by the Sorska sisters. Sorska twins, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I really liked it. And I, I, I know a lot of people didn't, but I was really enjoying it. I was, like, really pulled into the movie, and I hadn't even seen the first one. So, <laughs> so I was really enjoying like their directing style. I, I was enjoying just the way that they're executing things. And it's, it's indicative, in my opinion, of kind of independent and low-budget horror movies. I start to see these wonderful films that are executed so well and so simply. And it's often because the filmmakers have no resources, so they... They really rely on clever storytelling. They rely on good editorial, good shot selection, and and wonderful writing to tell their stories. Uh, I recently saw Hush, mm-hmm. and that's on Netflix. And it's it's kind of a, like I, a home invasion movie. Yeah, home invasion. And I, I was on my I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. And I'm looking over at my wife and I'm like, we could we could do something like this. You know, it's it's a couple of actors in a house and it's executed so brilliantly. And that's what I love about low budget horror. They really have to fall back on good storytelling and good filmmaking in order to execute it. They don't have 
huge budgets for all these fancy tricks that you'll you'll see in some of the bigger you know hollywood traditional horror movies and that's that's what makes them so wonderful to watch and just so enjoyable especially from a filmmaking perspective mm-hmm. um you speaking you you weren't uh, allowed to watch horror movies as a kid um have your parents seen uh your film Oh yeah, they liked it, which <laughs> again kind of threw me for a loop. I was like, okay, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that they would like it at all. But no, they they watched it. They liked it. They liked the character, the development, and everything. They, my mom, come, God bless her, she comes up to me and she's like, "It looks like a real movie," and I'm like, "Thanks, mom." <laughs> I'm sure. It's nice on one hand, and the other hand, it's yeah. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, mom. I guess <laughs> I'll put that one on the poster. It looks <laughs> like a real movie, mom. <laughs> now, see, I I would love that, but I don't know if you. I, I'm not recommend you doing it, but uh, I personally yeah. would, would get a kick out of it. But yeah, my distributor might say something about it, but that's when I sit back. Hey, come on, that's like the best compliment ever. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, it's coming out February 7th, but I saw that it, it will have, uh, you're going to show it theaters in Wyoming? Yeah, we're still working on our uh, regional theatrical release. So we're working on Wyoming, Colorado, and I would love to get into Utah mm-hmm. as well. I would like to kind of hit that tri-state region for theatrical. So if if you're one of two people who live in Wyoming and you you'll be able to go down to your theater and you'll be able to see it there. Mm-hmm. Excellent. But it'll be on a uh, video on demand, uh, February 7th. And how, um, how important do you think that is for, uh, for, uh, independent film like video on demand and Netflix and, uh, and streaming sites? Absolutely vital. I would not be able to see or even hear about the vast majority of low budget films, including horror films, but, romances, dramas, action films, if it were not for things like VOD services. I, whenever I like buy something or, or watch it on Netflix, nine times out of 10, it's low budget and it's kind of in, in the realm of what I'm doing. And I think it is so crucial for independent filmmakers to get onto the internet, get their VOD ser- services, and get it out there because without it, you know, your video rental stores are dead. People don't buy DVDs anymore. They only buy Blu-rays of their favorite movie or TV show. So it's really the only place that filmmakers have right now in order to meet like the demands of the modern audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were uh, uh, renting a blockbuster, um, when you would rent a movie, would you go by like the the title or something you knew about or, or the or the picture on the uh, on the the cover? So it was still the early days of the internet, mm-hmm. sort of. <laughs> I guess not really the early early days, but my version of early days of the internet. So I would kind of surf a lot of the forums that I was on at the time and just look for what people were talking about and just hear word of mouth. But the other thing that I often did, because I realized that as as a filmmaker, I'm probably not going to get a studio project right off the bat because I'm not going to be able to bring in millions of dollars. I realized that my future was probably in 
DVD and VOD, that sort of a thing. So there was a blockbuster down the road from me when I was in college, and I would walk there, and they had pretty much their bargain bins mm-hmm. <laughs> where you could get four films for like 20 bucks. Yeah. And I would just go in, and I would pick four random movies and just watch them. And you would be surprised at how good some of these films were. Mm-hmm. And I, I was always really impressed that there are all these wonderful filmmakers. And I would get every every genre possible. I would do horror. I would do romance. I'd do drama, action, sci-fi, you name it. I would just pick four random movies. Didn't matter what the cover was. Didn't matter what the title. Didn't matter if it had an actor in it or not. Pretty much just blindfold, put your hand in the box, pull something out, and watch it. And I did that so much through college, like to the point I was skipping classes because I'd rather just watch movies mm-hmm. in my dorm. <laughs> and I, I think that shaped a lot of who I am as a director, and it really shaped a lot of what my expectation of what I'll be able to get with the budgets or rather the non-existent budgets that I was working with at the time. And it, it really influenced what sort of movies I want to go out and make and what sort of movies inspire me. Mm-hmm. So uh, where can, uh, where's the best uh, place for people to, uh, to follow call of the wolf? So we have a call of the wolf Facebook page. It's just Facebook call of the wolf. Um, we also started our pre-orders on iTunes, so you can go to iTunes and already pre-order the film right now. Mm-hmm. I'm also starting production on my next feature film already, so you can also go to my personal Facebook page, which is just Rudy Womack, and you can follow the progress of my next feature film and a couple of short films that I have in the circuits right now. Very cool. So what is the, uh, the next feature film? So it's kind of a suspense thriller. It's uh, this guy, he he's from the wrong side of the tracks. He kind of lives a little bit of a checkered life, a little bit on the wrong side of the law, and he robs a pawn shop. Well, the robbery goes terribly wrong, and he locks himself in a rest stop bathroom, and he's got all this money and all these jewels from the robbery, and the police are just outside. And he has to figure out a very clever way to get the money and the jewels to his girlfriend with the police literally on the other side of the door from him. And it's an interesting film because as it progresses, we start to peel away these layers of the character and figure out all these events in his life that have kind of led up to this moment that he's stuck in right now. And you really start to discover a lot about him and his situation and it's it's a wonderful thriller because you never know what's going to happen next things are always happening unlike wolf this is a little bit more of a faster paced film (laughs) but we have a lot of wonderful flashbacks and everything that keep it very engaged and very interesting for the audience very cool now the movie you originally gonna make before you did call the wolf uh will you eventually make that i would like to it's a Uh, kind of a horror thriller as well. And it's about a detective who is investigating a string of murders committed by his own son, who is a little bit mentally deranged. 
And as the detective is investigating, he kind of starts to lose his own grip on reality. And it's it's an incredible film that I would love to do someday. I just need to get that extra umph behind me to go do it. Uh-huh. Well, maybe eventually here. So uh, anyway, uh, people should uh, check out Call of Wolf. I really enjoyed it, and it was uh, I think it was great talking to you. And I think people who listen here will agree. I hope so. Anyway. Yeah. Well, please go check out Call of the Wolf. It's available February seventh, and you can pre-order it on iTunes right now. Mm-hmm. We well, had a lot of fun talking to you. Well, thank you very much, Neil. I had a great time being on the show. Excellent. Awesome. So uh, thanks. And I'll talk to you again sometime. Awesome. Thank you.
realidad Atravesando el tiempo y el espacio Mientras es quitar tu propia piel Tu realidad Atravesando el tiempo y el espacio Mientras es quitar tu propia piel Tu realidad Atravesando el tiempo y el espacio mientras ves Tu realidad Atravesando el tiempo y el espacio 